everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. There's something about this week's guest that makes him an anomaly. Tony Blauer of the Spear System is dead honest and down to earth. For a guy that could swiftly end someone's life with his bare hands, he sure is humble. Blauer is an open book when it comes to his history battling his own fears. He's also fully honest about diagnosing signs of fear in others. Just as any great coach, Blauer will teach you how to fish. This starts with facing fear, understanding fear, controlling fear, and finally knowing fear. Here it is, episode 366. Power Athlete Nation. What's happening? It's that time again for another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and conditioning in ing. ing. oh yeah there tex you're there yeah this is luke one of your co-hosts tex co-host number two special two. guest friend of the friend podcast of the podcast john wellborn john Pleasure. wellborn founder power athlete nine-year nfl starter the man on a mission to a go mission fishing? from gad <laughs> I'm, we're on a from um, we're on a mission from God. Don't you blaspheme me! Don't you blaspheme me, ladies and gentlemen. Before we get rolling into today's episode with our, uh, I guess John, a lot of history there with you and Tony, right? Like, you got, oh, how yeah. long ago were you and Tony introduced? Uh, I met Tony um, like one of the first people I met within the CrossFit scene in '09, um, mm-hmm. and I taught one of our original seminars at Tony's place in Virginia Beach. I think it might have been like the first seminar we ever did on the East coast, uh, was at his spot. Um, he had this huge Blauer tactical deal and, uh, he and his son went through the seminar and actually some of the observations, uh, cause remember like one of the original CrossFit superheroes is this guy named Brandon. I can't remember Brandon's last name. Um, but it was pretty interesting cause, uh, like I think we ran out of barbells, so we were doing some dumbbell stuff and it was pretty amazing when I realized, uh, and this was actually a huge turning point. Like we never did barbell thrusters after that. We only did dumbbell thrusters because I realized that the dumbbells added this like element of balance to, uh, to it that like the barbell didn't. So, uh, mm-hmm. but no, we could, we had a great seminar. He took us to dinner, went and hung at his house, met his family. Uh, Tony has been by far like one of the nicest, most open book, genuine people. And um, what's, what's amazing is like, you'll hear, like I've, I've heard people like badmouth him. And I'm like, man, like that's so weird. Like I never, I, I never got that. If anything, the guy wears his heart on his sleeve and would give you the, you know, the shirt off of his back. And it's mm-hmm. been nothing but extremely nice and um, just very engaging every time I met him and extremely thought, you know, uh, you know thoughtful and just introspective mm-hmm. type of individual, which I think you're going to see on the podcast. So yeah, I always, so Tony, Tony's the like founder to... of the Spear System, right? Like, so that's his Spear Tactical is a kind of a, a combative system for self-defense and, and like conflict resolution, right? And now he's mm-hmm. into this no fear, um, K-N-O-W, not the vintage no fear 80s epic graphic tees, but no fear is in get to know it um, system, right? Which is pretty cool. But um, I guess before we get in with Tony, ladies and gentlemen, it is summertime and we summertime. have summer collection at the power athlete shop. We have restocks on all of our high movers. I'm talking destroy mediocrities. I'm talking be the hammers. I'm talking eat seek, the weeks, seek discomfort. I'm talking and seek third discomfort. monkeys, man. Third monkey teaser there. 
ladies and gentlemen, we have the summer collection going on as well as our annual patriotic T-E-E. -E. So head to shop.powerathletehq.com. Fill up your little E shopping cart, you know, like the e-commerce e-cart, or I guess a shopping cart. And uh, when you go to check out, put in coupon code RADIO, R-A-D-I-O, to get some savings for our listeners. Right? Uh, wasn't that also a movie with Cuba Gooding Jr.? Yes. Radio? No, you're thinking Frequency. No, Frequency was with Dennis Quaid and Jim uh -huh. and Caviezel, Jesus Christ himself. <laughs> <laughs> Radio. Now, McQuilkin, where does Frequency rate relative to, to Twister? I have Twister. An, well, number one, Garth Brooks sings the theme song for the movie. It's amazing. Oh, my God. Number two. Like, ladies and gentlemen, what you can see is... You know what's go, funny go. about Twister? I, hold on. I No. We're, it's Twister's the second amazing. best Twister because there's a movie called Titty Twister uh, that's mm. better than Twister. No. Okay, back to Frequency. Funny, hilarious story is it came out 2000, and I know this very vividly, the same weekend as Gladiator. So me and my friends snuck into Gladiator and were in line buying tickets to Frequency. Dennis Quaid, mm -hmm. and one of my buddies, is like overly obnoxious about it, and he's like, can't wait to see that frequency. Dennis Quaid <laughs> is my favorite actor. And so so it's, it's like a splinter in your mind at this point. A hundred percent, because this like 13-year-old kid, like who are we trying to fool here? Nobody and knows. It was during the day on a Saturday where nobody is in the theaters and we're like nervous and scared and such in oh, yeah. our seats going to this R-rated movie. And like we got away with it. It was unbelievable, awesome. Like it's a great movie. Man, so the first R movie, and I use Frequency as a cover, and mm. I don't think I've actually seen Frequency. I don't think anybody oh. else has either. I just I've know the it. Garth Brooks song. Tearjerker. It's Tearjerker. I forget what the... There's a radio in it. You nah. know, he's talking on like a, a two-way... His dad's CV. Yeah. And he's, CB. I think he's CB? talking to yeah, his CB. dad's... CB. Oh, his, he's talking to his dad, I think, or his a grandfather. CB is... You know, you have a CB joint in your car. CB is what you talk on. Ah. Anywho, ladies and gentlemen, that's right. And hey, if you're not looking for fresh, hot gear, then you know how, what you're going to spend your time doing? You're going to go to iTunes. You're going to tap on the little stars, all five of them, and you're going to read us. Oh, no. You're going to leave us a review, and maybe we'll read one. Right? Text, do we have, do we have one to read or no? Well, we'll save that. Well, yeah, we'll save that for next week while at the same time. Leave us something memorable. Yes. So we don't want a one-liner misspelled words like we see on mm. other OPPs, mm -hmm. no. other people's podcasts, oh, reviews. Well, yeah. We want a well-thought-out well inside joke that nobody would know unless they've listened. Mm. Be bold, be thoughtful, be hilarious. What was it? Uh, be bold and mighty forces will come to your aid. I don't know. You, that sounds... Yeah. I'm in on that. But enough about us, enough about the shop, enough about the podcast. Well, I guess more about the podcast. Let's get talking with Tony Blower. How about we do it, boys? Shall we? Let's I'm do a it. little nervous, a little scared. That means you, you're courageous if you move I forward. Can, I yeah. can smell the fear on you. I'm, I'm, <laughs> smell that <laughs> rabbit? Tony's, yeah. Tony's just a man, Smells right? like sex in this room. <laughs> um, Ain't got no time for that jibba-jabba. Right. Look at this setup, you guys. You've evolved so much. This is pretty impressive. Oh, thanks. Yes. The last so time, just, 
Last time we connected with Tony on Power Athlete Radio was November of 2016. Wow, we were still Whoa. in California. Mm-hmm. Holy wow. cow. That's true. You were just leaving. Yeah, we I left. That. Yeah. Was that it? We were, we were still in Cali in November. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, we, well, don't you remember we left uh, December right after Christmas is when we packed up. Oh, yeah. And we were there for New Year's, 16 to 17. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. you, guys wow. should, you guys should move back now. It's a good time to move back. Oh, I said nobody ever. Uh, dude. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I, I'm so, like, uh, it's funny. Uh, this first time, you know, my mom's lived in California for the last, well, she's 80, and she moved there when she was 26. And I'm on the phone, and she's like, I'm starting to think maybe California is not the place to live. <laughs> it's, I it's, a shit it's a shit show. I don't know how. I don't know if you heard. Uh, <clears throat> they're now locking up L.A. until August. Yep three months and and i guess i guess our governor and the mayor there like know so much about the virus and and all the well i think gavin newsom i think think gavin newsom wants to make a run for the presidency and i think what he's trying to do is uh he doesn't want any blood on his hands so i think by being overly cautious he's like a political move to like not you know, have blood on his hands so then he can do some political, you know, presidential run. And I also think, too, he's trying to tank the fifth largest economy on the planet to effectively give the FU to Trump and, you know, hopefully, you know, derail him in some, you know, re-election. Think this is political, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I know you're being facetious, but uh, 100% politically motivated. No, no, 100%. And, and listen, because if you... The idea here is, okay, it's August, it's three months. Now what you've done is you stress inoculated. You've conditioned the mind for three months. And then, whoa, let's do another three months. That's November. And uh, and then it's just because it's like I, the way I've been doing stuff since this hit is my week. And when I, when I deviate from this, I create stress in my mind and my life. My week is two days. It's today and tomorrow. And I, I plan Today, yesterday, I bust my ass. I go, shit, that was a good day. I go to sleep. I get up and I, I work I work my shit. Um, but if I start thinking too far in advance, like how do these how do these guys know that in three months it'll be safe? Why can't it be safe in, in a month or a week? Why not just do two-week shutdowns like everyone else? But we'll see. I hope, uh, I hope they change that because that's going to kill more people. I think, than the virus will. Well, they had an article came out, I think I forwarded you guys, and I think it was in the Washington Post, uh, where suicides are outpacing the coronavirus deaths. And they're expecting at the end of this eight-week period today that we will have more suicides. I mean, like domestic violence is up 7,000 or 700%. I mean, it's just like the amount of ancillary things that are associated with this are far outpacing what we're actually seeing. Sure, yeah. And then horrible, and and then... Noxious stuff too, John. Like like that we won't even see for a long like, like you'll notice a suicide, right? Like that'll happen. You'll notice domestic violence, you know. Uh there there's there's clues when that shit happens. But other things on the depression side, on the starvation side, things for like kids and future fear. I mean I mean, I was sick as shit. I was traveling a lot, uh October, November, December, couldn't shake stuff, like like high respiratory. You know, like, and I'm lying in bed going, man, this this is awful. Having trouble, like, breathing, like, out of breath. And um, this is, like, again, uh, November, December, January, on and off 
for like three months tra traveling to Europe. Uh, had just gotten back from Italy and had somebody told me, like I'm in bed, like I say to Jess, I go, like, I gotta cancel my shit today. I fucking, I can't even move. She's like, she probably whispered to herself, don't be a pussy and get to work. You know, I need to go shopping. She like, but under my, I couldn't hear that, but I I'm pretty new, sure. I need a new set of nine inch stilettos. Get up, Tony. Right, right. You know, and so, uh, but had somebody said to me right then, and here's where I'm going with this, by the way, you have COVID-19, there's a good chance you're going to die from this. What that would have done to my mind while I was like rehabbing myself. Like, so I can't even imagine what, I, I read somebody somewhere yesterday that 66%, uh, who knows what the fuck is real on the internet anymore. Um, 66% of, probably not, 66% uh, of current hospital admissions are people from homes where they're sheltering in place. In other mm -hmm. words, like there's got nothing to do with like people being out. It's the fact that now your immune system isn't doing shit. You're not fucking yeah. training. You're not eating properly. Well, and, and, and you know what I was trying to explain this to my daughters today. Um, my daughter was like, well, why are little kids like, and, you know, my daughters are eight. Like, why are little kids uh, immune system? Because I told them like, hey, you're greatest ally in the immune system is youth. The younger you are, the, the stronger the immune system. And I was trying to explain it to them. And I'm like, okay, so you go to school with like 600 kids who chew on their shirt, pick their nose, don't brush their teeth, don't shower, play in the dirt, pick food up off of the ground, and are pretty much like the dirtiest versions of what we could imagine because I see you guys. And, uh, dogs mouth. Yeah, yeah, like dogs lick you in the face, the whole deal. And you guys are basically going to the bathroom. Nobody washes their hands, touching this, going here. And I'm like, the Petri dish that is your school and your daily environment is effectively putting you in the most stressful immune system that or like immune function that you could ever imagine. So your immune system is so strong because of the battles that it's doing. The reason, and I don't know if you right. researched this, Tony, but the reason they came up with spring break, uh, summer break or winter break and summer, or sorry, it was uh, spring break, winter break and summer was not for the kids. It was to actually give the parents a chance by keeping the kids away from other kids because the kids bring home the sickness to the parents. Mm -hmm. So they put all those places just to give the parents a break of getting sick. And uh, really? yeah, so that, that was a kind of a funny observation, but uh, like, I'm like, you guys are like the Olympic gold medalists of immune function just for the mere right. fact of where, where you have to go. And then you come home and that's why like you guys don't notice anything. You come home and all of a sudden daddy's on the couch for two days, knocked out by something that didn't even, <laughs> wasn't even a blip on your radar, which has happened. And right. um, so I was trying to explain to him, but now we're in this lockdown quarantine environment where everybody's sanitizing everything and washing their hands numerous times a day. And you're not interacting with your friends, AKA the Petri dishes. Uh, and all that does is it reduces your immune function. And now when people go out, they're more susceptible to shit. So that's why our neighbor has horses and like, I'm like, dude, go over there and like play in the poop, like play in the dirt, like lick the, you know, play with the animals, do whatever you can just to, you know, cause that's strengthening the immune system. Yeah. It's so, it, there's, there's so much research around that. And I've been reading more and more on that, that it just blows my mind that there aren't people in the government like smart enough to go, okay, everyone fucking stop. Like this is, this whole thing, even walking around with a mask, I didn't, I couldn't go out of the house. I, I ran out of some uh, uh, fish oil and stuff like that. And I didn't want to order online. I was going to go to this, this cool, 
you know, place of Pharmaca that's got nice selection. And as I was about to leave, I went, I'm going to have to wear a mask to go in the store. Like what do, what do bank robbers wear now? Do they wear two masks? I mean, like, I just, I was like, like, I, I didn't want to go. I was like, I, I'm so fucking pissed off at this shit that I said, you know, I can just order some shit online. Didn't, uh, I decided not to go out because I uh, refused to wear the mask. I just put a handkerchief in my pocket and if they require it, I put it on. I figure if that's the currency that allows people like their, you know, the facade of, uh, of you know, of health and they can get back to living their normal lives. It feels like a small ask. Uh, yeah. I, you know, we did it yesterday. I ran into Whole Foods and like basically bandana around my face like a bank robber ran in there and my son was sleeping. So I'm holding him, get the stuff, get out. And uh, the the thing I was excited about talking to you today um, just happened to do with like, uh, like all of a sudden this, like the situation we're in has people quarantining and fearing healthy people. As I'm like walking down the aisle, all of a sudden, like as you start kind of walking up on somebody, people like freeze and they like get away and they get this nervous, distrusting look. And mm-hmm. I'm like, where did we go to like fearing our like fearing people, fearing contact and like this just uh, it's it's crazy, man. People act like you're like some like, you know, leper with flesh eating disease if you get within, you know, three feet of them. And uh, right. just a look of and horror and fear and thinking like, what does this do to somebody's psyche? I mean, it's already already putting us in a situation where we're, you know, mistrusting, but now we're, you know, severely mistrusting. And how does that work for interaction? And I know, you know, fear's your deal. And I just wonder how you are kind of couching that. Yeah, it's it's crazy and it's a great observation. I've noticed it and and I've basically been living in my house. I go out to gas station. I'll go pick up some food for the family. But my wife and my my daughters have been doing all of the runs. And I've got some trails near my house. And I walk them every day. And there, there are two groups of people. Uh, you know, there are people who wear masks and people who don't. And all of them have this trepidation. You know, you're walking down the trail. And you can see them all as soon as they you make eye contact. You see this other... The, the other group, it's always the other group because I'm just walking, start to change their trajectory so that they go, am I going to be six feet away from this person in this trail? Even though, you know, the information, hey, sunlight outside, that's that's where you want to be. But it's the same thing. You notice it in the aisles. I'm noticing it on a trail off the beaten path where people are like, I don't want to get too close to this guy because, you know, maybe some some droplets going to pop off his skin and land on me and it's going to go in my eyeball. Um, listen, the virus is real. And I, I wrote this about a month ago. I go, you know, I said, Hey, fear is contagious, but so is courage. How do we choose courage? How do we practice courage? And, and it starts with changing a relationship with fear. If you don't have the self-awareness to realize you are now living in a fear state, pardon the pun, because I'm in California, like, I mean, all these states are, they're fear states now, and and that's contagious. And so now we are, I mean, I had, I had uh, a buddy of mine uh, come over who started doing some uh, live garage gym stuff. And, and so I'm teaching out of my garage. And one of my, one of my assistant instructors who lives near comes over to, hey, can I come over to do the class? I go, yeah. And as he walked in, I, I, I noticed, I looked at him and does, does Casey look fucking healthy? Like my brain just did that. Does he look healthy? Okay. He looks healthy. Hey coach, how you doing? Elbow bump, right? I looked at him and I make the joke. Do you have Corona? 
he goes, I don't think so. I go, me like, you know, and then we, we start, we start the class, but like I unconsciously I'm making these jokes because I'm still, had he walked in and looked like he was like sneezing and coughing, I'd have went, what are you fucking doing here? Because yeah. I don't want it. I don't want my family to get it. So, but it's having the self-awareness to, you can't have critical thinking if you have no self-awareness. So you try and have a conversation with somebody that doesn't realize that they're in this fear state, that they're totally panicked. Like if you went up to somebody in the store, John, and said, hey, listen, you don't know me, but I'm fucking the healthiest person in the store here. And have you ever noticed that, uh, that how unhealthy people look in health food stores, just in general, pre-pandemic? You ever made that observation? That was yeah. crazy to me. Well, I mean, right. uh, how, I mean, uh, Texas is different in that I think in California, especially where we lived in Newport Beach, um, you know, Costa Mesa area, everybody's pretty upwardly mobile, you know, financially successful. You, you're not living in our neighborhood unless you, you know, can afford a million dollar house at the minimum, more like two. So right. uh, for the most part, everybody drove a nice car. People were in decent shape and like everybody was pretty healthy. When we moved to Texas, uh, I was out and like my kids were like, what is wrong with some of these people? I'm like, this is, you know, this is more akin to what America looks like. And the conversation mm-hmm. I had yesterday with Tom Inkledon is, um, you know, and cause my, my deal is I'm like, well, like how does this whole asymptomatic thing work? Like, how, like, why is it that some people get a tickle in their cough and a little bit of a headache? Other people are on the verge of death and he, we got in this whole deal with immune function and he kind of paused and he's like, I think what it's really doing is opening our eyes to really how unhealthy the population is. So for a healthy individual or for a kid or some, for somebody who exercises, who takes care of themselves and sleeps and does all the things that they should, it's a small little blip. Maybe you stay at home for a couple of days, you'll be fine. Or you might never even have a symptom. And then somebody else, all of a sudden, that's the end. I mean, they're gone. They're dead. And right. I'm like, that, that doesn't make sense. He's like, but look how unhealthy people are. He goes, dude, what this is doing is it's been, it's shining a light on exactly how unhealthy the population is as a whole. And he goes, it's like, I don't know how to tell you. Like, there's no way to cheat for the test. There's nothing they can do. All the work that you've done in terms of like making sure you're in shape, eating well, sleeping, training, doing all the things to, you know, uh, preserve and help your immune system. You're talking about taking fish, all these little things for how many people that are, you know, their greatest Friday night is trying to find a new Doritos flavor or go eat at Sonic and this. And Tom's like, I just think it's shining a light on exactly how unhealthy. And then we also know that one of the greatest um, predetermining factors for uh, not having success in fighting this off is obesity. And he's like, when you have 65% of the country that fits into that, it feels right. like uh, like a, a bad deal. And I was like, oh, God, I didn't think about it like that. So I mean, speaking yeah. of the fear thing, shouldn't those people be afraid? If you know, like if you know in your heart of hearts, your Friday night is all about milkshakes and pizza, and then Saturday morning is all about waffles and uh, mimosas. Like, it sounds amazing. And you know, you know, you're you're not a healthy person. Like, then this becomes a, a scary thing, you know. And I guess knowing that you're behind the eight ball, or you know, you've been dealt a shitty debt. Well, not even you've played a shitty hand of cards. Um, what does courage look like for those people in this current climate, Tony? I think it comes back as interesting question because where my head was going while you're explaining is like, it's, you know, uh, a lot of these people don't have the self-awareness to understand what they're shoving in their body. Right. I mean, you just look at it and I mean, uh, how many, how many advertisements do we have that smoking's bad for you? Right. Like for years that, that sugar is bad for you. That Coke is bad for you. That Gatorade is bad, you know, and people pound it smart people, you know, then you, and you look at even the, 
like the back and forth of smart people over politics. I think it, it comes down to, you know, everything is about critical thinking. And if I, I say to you, you know, like, really, do you want to put that in your body? Mm-hmm. You know, and you're like, what, what's wrong with this? Like, if you have no idea, and then if I show you, you know, hey, here's what lungs look like on a smoker, and here's what this is doing to your, you know, your immune system. I don't, like, I don't have a magic wand answer because the people that lose the 100 pounds and get their shit back together probably had an emotional or physical near-death experience and they had their epiphany, right? You know, it's, it's like, you know, uh, uh, going through the windshield in a car accident, and then going, I'll never not wear my seatbelt and I'm not going to speed and text, right? Something has to happen to them. Uh, a lot of these people, I think, are oblivious uh, like and, and or just don't care, like, which means they're oblivious and complicit at, a, at, a, at another level. Um, but like if you said to me, like I got hit up on LinkedIn by a guy, uh, a retired firefighter. He was a cop for seven years and he's probably 130 pounds overweight. And he wrote me, he wrote me a letter that literally made my eyes well up that he was tired of being a coward, tired of, of not being a role model for his kids, that he's been afraid all of his life and describes his background. And I wrote him, I spent a lot of time on a letter, but I said, first of all, you know, you're not a coward, man. You, you don't become a firefighter and a cop if you're a coward, that just doesn't happen. So, but what he, he had a story like, a, like his own, I hate using the word narrative because it's fucking overused all over the place now. But he had this story that started whenever that he's a fucking loser, you know? And, uh, and I worked with him a little bit, like, like literally like 97 minutes. And I just gave him some things to think about. And he just says about a month ago and, and uh, he sent me a letter yesterday saying he's, he's down 10 pounds. He's getting his shit together. He's going to drop a hundred pounds. He, he wants to help cops and, and firefighters and he, you know, but like, so there's a guy who I think he's, I think he's 44 years old or something like that. But for 40 years has had this idea of what life looks like. You know, you don't, you don't gain 130 pounds overnight. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, it's interesting. So until he created that self-awareness, nothing you, me, John, in any system in the world is going to help. And I think that's, that's why we see so much of the planet, you know, in the condition that John was talking about, that most people, you know, they've got a, a, a shitty immune system, they're eating shit and they're overweight. You know, uh, they got, they got that freaking dangerous trifecta. Well, but, well the uh, excess body fat, I mean, we've talked about it for years, is uh, extremely oxidative and puts a ton of stress on all the systems. So now all of a sudden, if your body's stressed in that way, um, you know, we, you know, we talked to ad nauseum about metabolic flexibility, you know, the ability to, uh, you know, and for, you know, however you want to talk about eating, whatever, the lower your body fat, the more muscle you carry, the more metabolically flexible you are and the stronger everything is. So it's a, it's a, it's not necessarily like some, fucking Rubik's cube that you have to, you know, master. Right. It's like, it's one turn. It's like, um, the more body fat you have and then people are like, Oh, it's body weight. Well, for the most part, the BMI is pretty directionally accurate for most of the, of the, of the population. Now, like if you're, uh, you know, a big dude that lifts weights and you're pretty, you know, like, uh, you know, every bodybuilder that's ever stepped on stage for the Olympia at the last 20 years and not to say those guys are the model of health, but they have low body fat, uh, right. you know, have a BMI that puts them in the obese. So like, I think that there's, uh, um, definitely, 
some people that you can kind of discount and be like, well, it's a healthy individual. But I mean, it's like, oh, everybody who's 400 pounds, then you see half Thor at 450, but he's 6'10 and deadlifts a thousand. And that dude's pretty, you know, I'm sure, you know, whatever that looks like, but pretty fit to be able to do what he does. So, but for the most part, the BMI is pretty accurate. And if it puts you into these situations and they, you know, haven't adjusted it because not enough people are carrying enough muscle mass, people aren't carrying enough weight and enough strength to basically to skew it. And I think that when you get into those deals, it puts you into this danger zone and they've established this for years and people just don't want to believe it. And the other interesting one, I can't remember who I had the conversation with recently was um, talking about, you know, the whole thing where it's like, you know, there's no fat shaming and people should be happy with who they are. And, you know, if, uh, you know, the big and the beautiful and this, and it's like, well, obviously that's not the case. Right. It was the Adele. So Adele posted a a photo where she lost a lot of weight. Yeah, she lost like a hundred pounds. It looks great. And people were like, this is awful. She's, she's teaching people that they're not okay being the way they are. And it's like, no, I, she's like, I was tired of being heavy. I wanted to be in good shape. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's insane how, I don't even have, I don't even know if a word to describe it, just how twisted society's gotten with, you know, the outrage generation of like, everything is okay. Not everything is okay. And, and not everything matters just because you have an opinion about it. But I wanted to ask you guys something, uh, John, have you, or any of you guys, have you heard of anybody who you thought was insanely fit? I was talking to a friend of mine today who said a buddy of his, who's in better shape than him and me. And he said, anyone that I know got hit with this. And, and he was in, he said, they put him in a coma. I said, I said, do you, he's out, he's, he's recovering. But, um, he said, super fit, 40 years old. And I said, well, do you know if he had any, you know, pre-existing condition that, that they talk about? And he said, he didn't know, but do you know anybody that has COVID-19 and you know, you went, wow, I never thought that guy and thoughts on that or experience with that. Uh, the only people that I've heard, um, I know one of Luke's buddies had it, but the only person that I really know directly, um, I think they had a headache for three days and maybe a little shortness of breath and maybe a tickle in their throat. I don't know if, uh, they went, they even went to the hospital. So that's really the only one, but I know one of Luke's buddies and his wife contracted no, yeah, it. No or, coma, no, nothing like that. It was, you know, the, the mild symptoms that you, you also hear in line with some of those stories, right, Tony? Like, right. and the truth, the thing on those, I, you know, how many people do you think healthy or not, uh, just assume they're healthy because they're in shape and like do healthy things, but don't go get annual blood work or buy annual blood work to really know what's going on under the hood. You know, when I hear some of that stuff, I'm curious, maybe there is some preexisting condition that went unnoticed or undiagnosed because dudes running sub six minute miles, five miles on a stack and, you know, can pull 500 pounds and back squat his body weight. And why, you know, I'm healthy, like, but who knows what, what could be under the hood there. And I'm totally speculating and I'm not talking about um, necessarily your, uh, your example here, Tony, but of the, the mass uh, maybe the cases that are uh, talked about in the media, right? Like seemingly healthy. Well, show me, you know, like, let's see what's under the hood type deal. Well, the yeah. other one I was, I, I was thinking was like, a point, like, what's the, mar- uh, like, so what would be the marker for, oh, this guy's really fit. I mean, mm-hmm. if he's doing nothing but a bunch of like really high oxidative, extremely like metabolically demanding type stuff, maybe his immune system is extremely down. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Um, and we're like splitting hairs too, because they're, but I'm just curious as a thought exercise, you know, not necessarily like casting any shade on, on how they're reporting this stuff. It's just curious. 
you know, I, I think it, I think it's so it's so new that they don't that they don't know, which is mm -hmm. why it's ridiculous to, you know, for like the governor here to say uh, three months. Well, we, LA can open in three months. Like you just don't know. It should just be every two days we're going to update you. Every day we're going to update you as we learn more. You know, this is this is uh, I liken this to our our, our medical nine eleven, and there shouldn't be any politics. There shouldn't be any bullshit. And the operators here. Where on the 9/11, we're we're actually you know our, our military, our special operations, the operators here are doctors and scientists trying to freaking fight this invisible en enemy, and it it disgusts me and and angers me um, at at how this is manipulated. I mean, you guys know it's been in the news for weeks now that you know hospitals get paid more if it's a COVID-19, and somebody actually I think from the White House said we're just labeling everybody. COVID-19 will just be easier. <laughs> like, like, wait a minute, you know? So to, to your point, um, you know, what, you know, John said the marker, what is that? I don't know that anybody knows yet. The bottom line is, you know, I, I tell people, you know, in, in my 40 years of study, violence, fear, and aggression, in 40 years of studying violence, synthetic and actual, um, I noticed one thing and I talk about it all the time when we're doing our, 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 our mindset coaching and shit like that, that, the people who manage their fear manage to fight. I say it again because it's, it's a powerful line. The people who manage their fear manage to fight. And so, when, in the '80s, way before Fight Club was a movie, we would we would get together and kick the fucking shit out of each other. We'd put on uh, hockey helmet, hockey gauntlets, taekwondo chess guard, baseball shin guards, dressed like Frankenstein. Before I built you know my fighting suit, and um, and we'd get together and we would have. Uh, like a street fighter would show up and a judo guy and a money like it was just once a month we just get together and we would do scenarios it wasn't sparring it was like Luke go stand over there John go stand over there okay uh, Tex uh, you're going to be the bad guy in here you're drunk and we give people characters so that they couldn't be themselves so uh, like if if John was a role player I go okay John you're you're uh, you're a, a meek uh, and he, what? Yeah. And you don't know how to play football. So there's no tackling dude. Like you're going <laughs> to like, we would take away people's unconscious bias. It was very clever, very intuitive, but here's what I noticed, you know, as this grew and I did this for 13 years. So I had a lot of, a lot of laboratory and at the simultaneously, I was studying body cam dashboard. Uh, there was no body cam back then that slipped in because of current nomenclature, but there was body cam CCTV, uh, uh, I said it again, dashboard video and CCTV. Uh, and then years later, of course, body cam. And, and I would look at movement and, and I was always trying to oh, look, did this person win because of their jujitsu or their Krav Maga or their boxing or their, and there was never a correlation between success under duress and the system somebody was trying to apply. So you could be a handyman or a carpenter if you're afraid that the house is going to collapse on you and you got to get that nail in before the building comes down. It wasn't your technique and how, what hammer you had. It was could you manage your fucking fear and make the move? And, uh, you know, and John, you know, we've talked about this before. That's just sure. the, the, there are lots of guys. There are lots of guys that tried out for football that were amazed, faster than you, stronger than you. But when you peel the fucking onion of why who got picked and who was successful, it, it's not always the fastest or the strongest. It's the people that manage their fear. People don't talk about this. But I noticed I'd have like a little woman in the class who's there. 
She's a, a victim of sexual assault. She's coming to this sen uh, seminar for uh, some cathartic purpose. And she's like fighting, like, like if I said to you guys, that girl, she's going up against these two guys here in a scenario, who are you betting on? You go, well, the two guys. But she'd be like screaming and fighting and calling that the guys are like, what the fuck? And it's just role playing, but it was intense. People were really getting hit. And I noticed this over a period of time, and I'm going to tie this to our talk right now, that you could be super healthy, and then all of a sudden you get sick, and now you're like freaking out. And I was thinking, I alluded to this earlier, where, where I was in bed a few times where I'm like, holy shit. And had somebody whispered in my ear, this is COVID-19, you're going to fucking die. That would have changed my recovery. If I entertain that thought, that becomes the narrative in my mind. And I tell people this, when you get a stimulus that, that creates a fear spike in your body, you immediately start to visualize. John, you could be about to lift a weight. You didn't warm up that much. You're going to do a cold lift just to do something. You bend over and you feel like a little in your back. Your brain immediately goes, what the fuck was that? I hope I didn't just, did I slip a disc? Did I tear something? Did I pull something? Every athlete does that. You hear something in in the night, you go, is that the floor moving or like, is that the, like, or should I get my gun right now? Our brain starts a movie and I described this. It's a really, it's a really interesting visual and actually ties to what you started to ask me in the beginning. When a stimulus gets introduced that has, that has a negative uh, uh, potential impact on us, it starts a movie in our mind. And that movie in our mind, we start to play this and in the movie, and it's the acronym that I share, false expectations appearing real, false expectations appearing real. It's when I'm visualizing a future event that involves my doom, my destruction, my death, whatever, whatever it's about. It could be about business. It could be about a relationship. It could be about uh, COVID-19. I'm visualizing something way in the future that is actually impacting me in the present. So now I am not doing what I got to do. I'm not getting healthy because I'm thinking six months from now, I'm going to die. I'm not thinking about what I need to do now to get healthy. And so I tell people this, this metaphor because it's, it's useful for a lot of people because we're not, we're not being pedantic. And I use that word on purpose because nobody knows, very few people know what it means. Where like a lot of people come on and they, and they use very <laughs> academic, like fucking huge words. And you're like confused. You're like, what am I dying? And I tell people, look, you got a movie playing in your mind. It's not real because it's a movie and you're visualizing the future. You're the director of the movie. You're the producer of the movie. You're the scriptwriter of the movie and you're the star of the movie. And you cast yourself as victim number one in a fucking horror movie that you're creating in your mind. The other day I was sitting with my wife, Jess, and she goes, some days I'm okay. And some days I feel like I'm generating this anxiety about this whole thing. I, I don't know. I, I don't know where we're going to be in three months. And I went, I said, you know, I know you hate when I fucking coach you and I, just I, I and then I, you started coaching her right and yeah. then i said but i'm not going to charge you we'll, we'll exchange like like favors later for <laughs> um but but it's like it was like sweetheart you're thinking about three months from now i do that too and here's the thing is like i'm not i'm not above this it's my self-awareness allows me to go oh fuck i caught this and i stopped this and so what we need to do in this movie metaphor is recognize this is that when we start to, we're lying there for five minutes, we hear something on the news. We didn't verify it, but we believe it. We go, shit. Like, like when, when, you know, Jesse walks in the room and goes, Newsom said three months. I immediately started thinking about my son up in LA. 
and his and, and his livelihood is tied to a gym. He's doing a little bit of stuff on Zoom, but it's not sustainable. Um, I, I, I wasn't so worried about my daughters here. And then I started thinking about all the people that I know that have gyms and small businesses. And I started getting, I could feel my breathing change. I could feel my physiology change. And then what I did was I went, I am now playing a horror movie. We don't know what's happening, if this is going to go. The cavalry might rush in, and it's the the we need all of us need to develop that self awareness to stop that movie, and then recast it with us as the fucking action hero in that. Okay, how are we going to adapt that whole that whole you know the stoic the obstacles the way, you know pressure creates diamonds whatever fucking lame meme you want to you want to you know post for yourself. But the idea is this: is I tell people that everyone has fear, and some people relate to it differently i think i've told you my my skydiving story i tell it on every podcast where i was down at fort bragg years ago does this ring a bell i'm sitting there and a guy asked me if i want to no, go jumping but i love Just hearing stories going, like I'm, I'm a huge fan of people retelling stories i love it okay so 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 i'm down at fort bragg i'm in a, day, a couple days early to go work with this uh, group that i'm there beautiful guy, fayetteville beautiful fayetteville you know, love love fayetteville, love fayetteville. Um, and so uh we're um Sitting there, he says to me, you want to go jumping later? And I'm like, I know what he means, right? I go, you mean like up and down? He goes, no, motherfucker, like skydiving. I said, I know what you meant. I said, no, nah, I'm not a big fan of jumping out of airplanes. He goes, I thought you're like Mr. Fear Management. And he does the air quotes, you know. And I go, I am uh, Mr. Fear Management. I'm managing my fear by not going skydiving. Because <laughs> right? So he laughs, but there's another guy sitting there, John. He laughs, and the other guy laughs too, but it's a nervous laugh. Now, they're both in the same unit. So I know this guy doesn't like skydiving, but he's good at it because he's in the unit. He's, there's a skill set he needs to have. So I describe, I explain to people, listen, you can't be brave if you're not afraid. The guy that's willing to jump in the airplane because he's an adrenaline junkie and has a death wish and doesn't care doesn't require any courage. He's just going, let's go jumping. The guy that goes, I fucking hate this and does it anyhow because it has to be done that's the brave person, right? And uh, and so I tell people, like, you can't be brave if you're not afraid. The Every person, and Customato, Mike Tyson's original boxing coach, sure. great, great classic quote, he says, you know, the difference between the hero and the coward is what they do with their fear. They both feel it. And if we're honest, it's that moment now where you go, fuck, should I be the courageous bystander here? What do I need to do to protect myself or my family here? And, and, uh, and for... People listening, if you want to change a relationship with fear, you need to accept it and then turn it into a fuel. Like, so you just say, if I get a fear spike, like if I had stress inoculated, like if I had adapted to that. So if I said to, if I said to, to John, you haven't played football like professionally in years, but if I said, you know, see that guy over there, could you tackle him and run him through the wall? Your brain goes, not only can I, I'd like to actually. I don't even know who he is, but I'd really like to do that. Instantly, I hear Bobby Boucher being tackling fuel <laughs> and the water boy. Like, yeah, no, I hear you. It's just that yeah, tackling but, fuel. But, and, and most of the people on your, listening to your podcast understand training enough that there's an adaptation that happens. The myelinization of the neurotransmitter at the neuroscience level. The, 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 I'm inside my comfort zone because I've done this enough times. I know what to do. But every arena of, every new arena adds an element of psychological stress. And then we possibly second guess our preparedness. And here we have a new scenario with a, you know, like some super flu with different strains 
and and the media is just telling us all the time everyone's going to die you better stay inside and it weighs on us we've got to change our relationship with fear to get out of this you know uh tony as you're talking about this i've told this story on our podcast when i was uh playing with the chiefs we went we won um you know finished well enough to get invited and have a uh, a wild card game in indianapolis against peyton manning in the first round for a uh, wild card <clears throat> and that last week willie rove hurt his back and you know willie rove was you know uh, hall of famer one of the best to ever play the job and we were that would have been a good matchup because he's going against dwight freeney at the time who was probably the most fearsome pass rusher in the nfl especially on turf in indianapolis in a playoff game and so willie's back ends up you know hurting him and his backup is a guy named Jordan Black, who's, you know, a couple-year guy, you know, got some playing, got a lot of talent. Um, and so all week we're watching film, watching film, and, you know, like we're, you know, an unexorbited amount of film on Dwight Freeney and what he does, change of direction and all this stuff. And so, you know, the whole time I'm playing right tackle and he's playing left. I'm like, you good on this? You got everything? Yeah, 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 I'm fine. So... I can see the nervousness in him building as we get to game day. He gets and he wasn't an early guy, but he got there early, which always struck me as weird. Like I always took the first bus because I didn't like to be rushed. And if guys took later buses, everybody. But all of a sudden, when you see somebody break from uh, their routine, I know something's wrong. And I'm like, OK, he's like, oh, yeah, no, I just want to get out there and warm up and feel the field. And so he goes out and he comes back. And I remember we went out for pregame, came back in and then we were standing in the uh, uh, in the tunnel. As we're getting ready to run out and they announce us, they announce the defense, and we hear they announce him last. And as he as we're watching these guys run out, he turns to me and he goes, uh, Dwight Freeney's just a man, right? Like, how good could he really be, right? And, like, the look of fear on his face was like, the only thing I can, I can equate it to is in the movie Gladiator when he's standing next to the guy who pisses himself and he takes a big step away from him. <laughs> I just looked at him and I was like, dude, and I just took a big step away. I was like, I, like, we're about to run out on the field and like, here it is, like your worst nightmare has become your reality and you've built this up in your head and now here you are and like not even pretending to like go out and be like, I'm gonna go out and fucking beat this dude's ass even though you and nobody believe it, but at least tell me that. Right. So we go out there and his worst fears became his reality as Dwight Freeney threw a nasty spin move on him and sacked the quarterback and he gave up like three hits and I'm standing there and like, this dude's legitimately, Freeney is legitimately killing us. If we're going to drop back, I mean, we can't do anything. And all right. of a sudden I look and I see my backup come running on the field. And I'm like looking around and I see him get to the huddle. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing here? He's like, hey, they want you to go play left tight end. Mm. Right. I, and I've never played left tight end. And I'm like looking at it. I mean, I know all the plays. And so I go stand over the side, call myself ineligible. And uh, Trent Green comes over to me and he's like, dude, uh, block Freeney. And so I looked at Jordan. I was like, hey, man, uh, we're going to pass pro on this one. I'm going to jump set him. I'm going to take a knockout fucking shot and try to knock him out. And if, uh, if I miss, just tackle him. And so I came off the ball and just like hit him with like a huge punch to the face, re redirected him. He came inside and Jordan tackled him. And we proceeded to double team him. And it was really, I mean, it, it completely, uh, you know, killed our offense because we were all of a sudden here we were. I mean, we were used to doing this double tight set with Tony Gonzalez and Jason Dunn. All of a sudden that's fucking over. We become one dimensional. They end up beating us. And uh, like it was uh, like I've never in my life been in a situation where um, my worst fears became my reality like that. And I couldn't get out of it. There wasn't any way that I couldn't like shake it loose. And that was to this day, I've never seen anything like that. And like every time you talk about fear and you're talking about the skydiving deal, 
like to see uh, the manifestation of somebody's mind all of a sudden become the reality. And all of a sudden people aren't the hero of their story. Like I always imagine, man, at the end of the day, everybody wants to be the hero of their own tale. Unless you're right. Luke who wants to be, you know, best supporting actor. <laughs> uh, but that realization and, and dude, I, I love Jordan. I thought he was a great player and he went on and I think he played eight or nine years and was Houston, able to, yeah. yeah, went to go play for Houston. But like that defining moment when he could have, like if he had gone out there in a playoff game and handled Dwight Freeney, he would have written his own check. He would have been a, uh, you know, like he would have been a high price free agent. He wouldn't have gone agent. to Houston. <laughs> he wouldn't have gone to Houston and he would have been a high price free agent. Fucking champagne, velvet ropes and the whole nine yards. He goes out there and proves to everybody exactly who they thought he was and who that guy is and make him look like a superstar. And... um I think what's what's really fascinating for me, at least, is I've been in those situations and always come out on top through whether it was just preparation, good luck, or who knows. But uh, I've never been in a, in a situation where I've seen fear completely alter the trajectory of people. I mean, I took your class, and for me, like, uh, like fear is like a, a good friend that shows up. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, this is, you know, I manage it way different, but um, that probably comes from my previous job, but... Man, like to this day, I've never. The only time I've ever seen anything like that was in that moment when the dude's pissing himself in Gladiator. Well, that's that's uh, a riveting story. Aside from all of that, uh, that part, just visualizing the intensity of that. But this is what what you know. There are outliers. You're probably an outlier, John, or you were just the, whoever coached you, your guardians, your parents, the way you were, the way you were brought up. I my fascination with fear was when I was a wrestler, I was a really good wrestler, but I never realized how good I was. So I never realized my success. Uh, I would sabotage all of my stuff as a very uh, uh, competitive skier. Um, you know, and, and, and I, I remember I, I tell this story in our, in our no fear clinics now where I grew up on skis, you know, you're, growing up in Canada, you're either a skier or a skater and you're playing hockey or you're skiing. And I was, I was a skier and I was a really good skier to the point that, that you, there would be whispers when I was a teenager, Hey, if he continues on this path, maybe Olympics, who knows? And, and I'm like, who the fuck are they talking about? Not me. Right. And I remember, uh, this one race where, it's about 15 minutes before I'm in the starting gate. And my coach comes over to me and says, how do you feel kid? And I turned to him and I lied right to his face. I feel great coach, but I wanted to projectile vomit on him. I'd already pissed five times. I was freaking sweating, even though we were above the tree line and it was freezing. And, uh, I take off <clears throat> down, you know, he's rubbing my legs and he says, remember, Hey, middle of the course is getting really icy here. Gate 50, watch that, take it high and outside. He's giving me, you know, technical shit. Got it, got it, got it. I end up wiping out like I always did in every race. I would, I would either catch a tip or ski off the course. And so I didn't sabotage by not showing up where it was like, Oh, I thought the race was tomorrow. Oh fuck. You know, like it didn't, you know, or, you know, I didn't, I didn't miss it. I went and I went so hard because I didn't understand what I was feeling, these negative thoughts about myself. And years later, I wrote an article where I went, my ski coach was actually a ski trainer. And I dis I differentiate between this. And I think you'll dig this if we've never talked about it before. It's kind of new that there are technicians, there are trainers, and there are coaches. Most people who call themselves coaches are actually technicians. They're people who go move your hand, move your feet. They're biomechanic fixers. 
Yeah, uh, use your hook grip, get your feet a little bit wider. Trainers are people that understand, most coaches are actually trainers. And those are people that have memorized or learned, whether they're outdated or current or intuitive or applied uh, uh, programming. You can do this 10 times, you're gonna PR here, we're gonna do this percentage of that and they got their little calculator. And it's like the, the, the stuff that everyone does. The coach is the person that can read the eyes and the body language of the athlete. And the only job that the coach has is to inspire performance. So if somebody, I was actually on, on a podcast earlier today, all, all about Bruce Lee, ironically. And uh, the guy asked me, it was a business podcast. The guy was fascinated with Bruce Lee, asked me if I would talk about it. So, uh, and, he, and he gave me, he says like, you know, what, what do you think of Bruce as a businessman? I go, well, Bruce is an entrepreneur. You know, he became the, one of the biggest stars in the world. But, you know, his system, Jeet Kune Do, the way the intercepting fist is about, you need to be first, you need to be best. You need to understand directness, you need, like no frilly shit. That, that's how core competency, right? But the most important story about Bruce was the time that he had a street fight back in the day, because he was teaching white people and the Chinese weren't supposed to do that. And he had a challenge match with this guy and he beat him handily. But after he noticed that he was really out of breath, even though the fight lasted a minute. And so he began sprinting. He began working his aerobic capacity and shit like that. And I explained that. And I, I like I tie this to all together, hopefully, is that he had the self-awareness to realize where he was missing energy or engine or skill or knowledge. He was a voracious reader. He was a philosopher. And all of this, I think, ties to, you know, what we're talking about technician trainer coach is like we could look at that guy i don't remember the names now who fucking shit himself but imagine when he found out that he was playing he started playing false expectations appearing real the movie i'm gonna fuck my life up and i live in terror and horror he was playing that movie for days yeah before that event and then it really manifested itself but i look at that and I don't know your coach and I don't know him as a failure in coaching because the athletes, most athletes are superstitious. Yeah. When I was a skier, my coach, imagine if he had 15 minutes before the race come up to me and said, or not 15 minutes, but 30 minutes because it was 15 minutes before when he asked me, how do you feel, kid? Great coach. I lied to him. Do you know how many fighters I've trained that are injured and not ready? And they go in there and I, I realized like in round two, they were bullshitting me about their their road work that they were doing. Or I didn't want to tell you that I, I hurt my rib in sparring because I wanted to do the fight. People fucking lie because they want to get in the game. And, and I remember thinking if my coach had come up to me 30 minutes earlier, put his arm around me and said, how do you feel, coach? I'm sorry, how do you feel, kid? And I said, great coach and lied to him if he had said... You know, I've been coaching you for three years now. You're a really good athlete. You know how to ski, you know how to turn, you know the fucking game. Have you noticed that you don't finish any races? I might have looked at him and went, I don't know what you're talking about, coach. <laughs> and started crying and my tears would have frozen because we were by the chi line was freezing. My point being, my, my ski coach, who I loved, was a ski trainer. He didn't look me in the eye ever and go, you are not living up to your potential at all. What the fuck is going on because i might have said i'm so scared before race and i'm trying to reconcile in the language the sentence is if i'm so good why am i so scared 
People don't understand. I train, you know, my main business now is training military and law enforcement. Do you know how many guys are out there that don't understand the physiological changes in their body from fear and danger? All of them. Tacky, tacky, most of them yeah, don't understand. Them. What's that? Yeah, I was going to say all of them. Yeah. Well, some of them do like, like some of them are like you, John, where they go, let's go. And they're, and they're intuitively doing box breathing before a hit, right? They're, they're, they're the outlier where someone goes, uh, you know, shit like, uh, um, yeah, but I mean, uh, Tony, Tony, but like, doesn't that come from the fight game? I always thought like, I knew when I was going out to, to, to box any of the fighting stuff I did, I knew I was going to get hit. Right. Like, like there was no uh, illusion that I was going to go out there and not take a big shot. And you kind of just make that deal and you're like, yeah, I'm going to go out, but I'm going to deliver more than I get. And hopefully things work out well. But like you can't be. And I always thought this was interesting, like fighters having fear, like, uh, you know, they go out there and like like they're not going to get hit. I mean, that's why you that's why you practice. That's why you spar. That's why you get in all these situations. So by the time you walk out there, I mean, that was why I almost felt like we played as hard as we could in practice and did so much preparation by the time I got to game day like this felt like hey we get to wear our game unis and go out and fucking beat somebody else's ass right and, and that's why you train and do all these things I, I I think the observation that you you're making is is so spot on and I'm almost like man I wonder if we've had this conversation because you guys have heard me say like I would never you know Raphael is the greatest coach I've ever been around and I don't qualify myself as a coach I'm more on like the technician especially with offensive line when I got asked to coach this stuff uh, I can teach you where to put your hands, how to bend your knees, how to punch, and I can show you what I did. But like the type of person that inspires another individual to be a better version of himself where all of a sudden you want to do good because this person believes in you is that like that next evolution of coach. And um, that's right. kind of why I always feel a little disingenuous when people call me coach and I'm like, ah, I still think I'm a good athlete that can help you be a better athlete. Uh, but in terms of like inspiring you and like mentoring somebody into that greater, you know, in, into the fray, um, you know, that's something that I don't know if I've mastered. And but I think like as a father and as a parent and, you know, business owner and all these other things, you need to constantly inspire. But uh, I think for playing football, this stuff, man, like I just rather teach people how to be really good at what they do. Because I think there's like less emotional investment, like probably your coach comes over to you. How you doing, kid? And if you were like, well, fine. OK, good. He's fine. And I don't have to do any emotional right. investment. But to get there right. 30 minutes and really get into somebody's psyche and absorb that. Fuck, man, that's uh, that's a uh, next level shit. Well, that's and that's why I created that technician trainer coach separation. And it's not to put people down. I say it. It comes across a little bit diggy and sarcastic. Like, hey, you know, most coaches are really trainers. And but they got their big you know, shirt you know the you know the, the polo yeah, but, shirt. but do you think everybody wants to be a coach like uh, like do you think everybody wants to have that like deep no. emotional connection with their i i don't think most people that's, want that yeah but that's that self-awareness and that's like 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 it's interesting your response if you just think about how uh uh um introspective it was just here on the show live where you go i don't know if i want that i, I I'm, I'm i'm still learning that i don't know if i like this this separation that i shared with you guys next time someone says you know hey coach john can you help me out here you might say hey uh you can call me that but <laughs> like i feel really uncomfortable because the coach is supposed to inspire performance and the person goes but you are you're showing me this it, like it's a dance it's sure. a dance but I, I agree with you that um but like i'm only when I create the separation, it's for learning. It's for understanding the journey. Most people go, 
they open up their gym. They haven't taught a single class. They got the sign up and, but they have a shirt that says coach. Yeah. And I'm going, no, like, like you're not a coach yet. This takes years and years and maybe it never even happens. But if you understand the journey, then you also understand where maybe you need to redirect. Like you might be in a conversation with somebody, recognize that mm, this isn't, this isn't my fucking wheelhouse. And you go, Hey man, I need to go talk to Raphael. I'm going to make an introduction here because what you need here, and that's coaching too, isn't it? Right. Yeah. It's, it's making sure that the people are getting the right, you know, metaphoric nutrition to be the best version of themselves. That little ditty and the sound of my smooth, sensual, yet strong voice means you're about halfway through our chat and you've earned yourself a little brain break brought to you by our friends at Train Heroic. And I know you're like, Callie, your voice is smooth, sensual, yet strong, but what does that have to do with Train Heroic? And the answer is it doesn't. But here's why we at Power Athlete think it's important that you're aware of what Train Heroic is capable of. Their whole jam is to empower you to train without limits. Sound familiar? That means that you can take your little gym business or side hustle and absolutely blow the fucking doors off of it. Their immersive training solutions allow you to train athletes from New York to Nicaragua. And FYI, if you consult a map, those places are really far from each other. Gym space is not an issue. Distance, not an issue. And scheduling, well, we already know that time is an illusion, but it's even more illusiony with Train Heroic. With Train Heroic, you can provide an engaging, flexible, and affordable training experience for your people wherever they are on this flat earth. They provide everything you need to look like a pro, even if you're a complete Luke Summers, and transition into this brave new world of online training. The best part is that they give you a fortnight night of free usage. That's two weeks for anyone not born in the 1700s. And when that wraps up, you can keep the party going for the price of a Chipotle burrito. But wait, there's more. A burrito without guac. And you pay only as your business gains grow. The whole crew uses Train Heroic and has done so for years. There's a reason we are taking the time to mention it, and it's not because they promised us a party barge or a suitcase full of collectible beanie babies, uh, baby tigers, or anything else that you deem to be extremely valuable. It's simply because we like them, we use them, and we believe in what they can do for your business and your athletes. Power Athlete has grown by 50% for the last four years because of Train Heroic. And in the words of one of my old coaches, you can't argue with results. Head over to trainheroic.com, click on the free trial button in the upper right-hand corner, and get started today. Now back to the show. We'll be, oh, um, I want a quick highlight. Yeah to Ruiz and he breaks down similar respect in that he asked coaches to sign what he calls a pipe pledge and pipes an acronym for presence, intelligence, quotient, professionalism, and emotional quotient. So he has a breakdown of what that represents for the coach. And then it leads to creating a pipe presence for your athlete. So, um, I was telling, we, we talked about this morning on our, uh, we do a little like kind of morning podcast deal we've been doing since this deal started with quarantine and, um, uh, I've been doing the masterclass. So I, I bought the masterclass after Kara Miller recommended it. And the one that I watched or I did yesterday has to do with, um, um, uh, Doris, I think it's Goodwin. She's like a historical pres, uh, 
like a, a presidential historian. She worked for LBJ when she was 24 and like her husband was like the speechwriter for Kennedy and just like Crazy. such a smart, yeah, like Pulitzer Prize winning, just so sharp. Uh, but the interesting thing, and she, she talked about Lincoln, uh, LBJ, FDR, and Teddy Roosevelt as the four presidents she analyzed. And the one thing that was most interesting is every one of them was an incredible storyteller. And they mm. felt that by being a storyteller, they could uh, inspire people as leaders and that the mark that she found, the common thread for leadership, was the ability to tell stories and convey because people remember stories. They remember how you made them feel. Right. They remember this stuff. And so there's an interesting thing. Um, as you've been talking about like this idea of coach and I, this is actually something I was thinking about last night. Like there's a differentiation between trainer. There's a different a differentiation between like the, like the tactician, the coach, and also the leader, because I think like the coach actually has a relationship with their athlete, you know, to where, you know, you want to, or they inspire you to do more than you think that you can. Whereas like leadership, I think that's uh, that's on like a broader sense when somebody can get in and connect with a huge group um, that I think is the leadership aspect. And then you get into this other thing. So I think that there's even another piece of that where you're looking at these, you know, or it, would, would anybody say, hey, Teddy Roosevelt was an incredible coach? No, the guy inspired people because he lived this life. And he, you know, uh, she also talked about Abraham Lincoln, that there was some journal she was reading where he would go into like the local, you know, pub or whatever it was and stand with his back to the fire and like entertain the crowd for hours with just stories and here and, you know, his humanity and this. And it just, it really inspired me. And so Tex took a shot at me yesterday and he's like, you're a good, you, or what, what did you say about a storyteller? Honestly, dude, I don't recall this, but on, I will take a shot that Teddy Roosevelt was a great football coach because technically he invented the forward pass. Oh. So this is a little fun fact because the only teams that had football at the turn of the century were Yale, Harvard, the future leaders of America, and there was kids dying from the head contact. So in order for them to change and make football safer, he called the, the coaches to the White House, so the leading minds in history. And this is where Pop Warner, what we know as youth football, he was actually a football coach for, for youth. And then this was also the, when Native Americans, they were trying to, I don't know the correct term, but colonize them from, yeah. from into society. So Pop Warner was a football coach for Native Americans to help prepare them and teach them kind of rules and teamwork to lead them in. So it was he was part of that. But Teddy Roosevelt actually changed football forever. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, if, if you have an opportunity to do it, I, Luke, uh, we need to sit down as a group and rewatch it. I'd love to. It has a workbook mm -hmm. and just so rich, this, this lady's stories. But like uh, and then she lists all like the the. Um, uh, speeches that her husband wrote, which was like uh, Bobby Kennedy's South Africa speech. And so I went and read all these speeches and like the imagery, but uh, it's pretty interesting, like the ab ability to inspire the masses. And like, you know, I, I, I kind of base it like a head football coach, you know, a head football coach has got to be a leader that can stand up and inspire 53 people. Um, the position coach has to be able to inspire and connect and pull from his individual, you know, say anywhere group of five to 10 individuals, be able to pull out and make them better versions of themselves. And then, you know, then you might have somebody who's like, a, you know, quarterback's coach or this. I mean, the tactician, the guy that, you know, the offense coordinator is calling the plays and figuring out all the schemes. And um, it's just I, I think there's another layer to that one. And that master class, like, fucking blew my mind. So and these these personas that's, aren't that's, like mutually exclusive either. You know, you, you're not one and not the other. I think that, um, you know, they're, they're individual specific specificity specific in the sense that 
some athletes might, might not be ready to be coached, right? And by providing them the tactics, you're inspiring growth and performance and you're doing it just by really dealing in cards, right? Versus making eye contact, really digging in and getting into the psyche. But um, certainly hard thing to do all at once, be that like all three things at once, which, you know, John going to the NFL is why they have that hierarchical coaching structures. So, you know, I'm sure these coaching staffs have the, like the roles laid out for these dudes, I'd imagine at least. Um, and that's what makes them successful or not, right? Is their inability to execute on those levels at the appropriate time with the appropriate individual. I think that the, the thing with the, the model that I shared is that part of it is a journey. You start off as a technician, you got to understand the movement first. Then while you're understanding the movement, you're also conditioning your, your, your body and your mind. And that's stamina, endurance, speed, agility, all that stuff. Uh, but I, you know, we have a maxim that ties more into neuroscience. We tell people, be careful what you practice. You might get really good at the wrong thing. So yeah. if someone teaches you to run, run wrong, incorrectly, less desirably, you can never be as fast as you want it to be. Or maybe you create you know, ankle or knee or back issues or whatever. Same thing with lifting, same thing with striking. If I don't teach you how to make a good fist, you know, you know, you're always sprinting, breaking your hand, you can't generate power. So it starts off as technician, and then you become a trainer. And, and then you become a coach. And you can be if you're a boutique business, like I'll walk into my garage gym, and I'm saying, No, put your fingers like this, get your hand here, get your head a little bit lower here, I'm being a technician. And then I go, okay, we're going to do this 10 times. Let's so going to do this fast. We call it, you know, a static dynamic alive. And then I break down components of speed, the difference between quickness and suddenness. And, and so I'm getting all this technical information. And then when I put somebody in a scenario and I don't see the skills I hoped to see manifest, that's when my coach hat comes on and I'm going, okay, what's going on here? Uh, but I really think, when again, this goes back to my observation in the 80s, the people who manage their fear manage to fight. I don't think somebody can be a, a really, really dynamic, effective coach if they don't understand uh, the, the neuroscience of fear. That's that's my observation after all. Because you can you can pat somebody on the back, you got this, man, do this, do this to your family, do this for whatever. You know, uh, like, don't be a loser. Don't be a bitch. What you say? Because and everyone's going to be different. I remember uh, um, talking to Maurice Smith. I don't know if you guys uh, know the name. He was a UFC heavyweight champ. He was a K1 fighter, one of the best high boxers in the world. And uh, one one day I see him getting ready for a fight. And he's like lying there with, uh, uh, you know, whatever would have been the equivalent of... Uh, uh, you know, Bose headphones on or, or whatever the, the, the hot brand is now. And he's like lying there listening to R&B. And I interview fighters, whether they're military or boxers or MMA. And I'm always looking for these threads. And I, and I, I said to Maurice, I go, Maurice, can I ask you a question? I interview fighters. He goes, yeah, yeah, of course. I go, do you feel fear before your fights? And he said, let me ask you a question. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, what? He says, uh, do you have a job? I said, yeah, I do. He said, are you afraid to go to work? I said, no, I'm not. He goes, me either. Headphones back on, right? Now that's such a cool story, right? Are you afraid to go to work? That's kind of like what John is, like I'm going to work. And he accepts 
that this feeling of fear is his fuel. It's his relay. I tell people, fear can't be your backseat driver. It's got to be your co-pilot, right? In this metaphor of my brain is my navigation system. What are my strategies? What are my plans? What do I understand the game I'm in right now? Pandemic game, football games, uh, like self-defense. My body is my physicality. And what is my energy system right now? In, in a performance anxiety or high stress situation, my energy system needs to be part fuel, uh, part fear. And that fear in this metaphor is my fuel. And because I wanna do well, remember you can't be brave if you're not afraid. So if I change that relationship, but there are people who have fear in the back seat, right? And so that was your guy, you know, uh, underneath it goes, this guy's, this guy's a, a real man, right? You know. Right there is fears in the backseat going, you suck. You're going to screw this up. You're not going to make it through this, right? As opposed to, wait, I look over to fear in my passenger seat and go, you better put your fucking seatbelt on, man. Here we go, right? Yeah. That's been kind of my journey for decades is how do I pivot and change that relationship with fear? And then me as a coach, I'm being in the garage doing a scenario with somebody and I don't, and I know I've seen, you look at, at, at lifting, right? You got, this guy's a beast, but he can't PR this or he can't snatch this. 99% of the time, if you know, as a coach, this guy's got that strength and speed and range of motion, that the only thing that's holding him back is fear. And that's literally what, after 40 years of studying this shit, you know, if I tell people, I believe it hundred percent fear throttles, everything we do from who we talk to, therefore who we marry, how much money we make, where, where we live, how much weight we lift, whether or not we're going to protect ourselves or not. It's like, we go through this. What should I eat tonight? Why well, don't want to make the wrong choice? This is a silly example, but somewhere in the deep recesses of our peeling in the onion brain is we don't want to be wrong. And that's a fear-based response. Um, Eventually you get over it. You go, fuck it. Let's just go. Or who gives a shit? Just order. Right. Yeah. Well, but we're going to eat again tomorrow. So. <laughs> right. Uh, hey, I was going to pivot a second. Um, you know, you yes. being a historian and like a, um, you know, fan and have extremely knowledgeable on Bruce Lee, any historical accuracy to the scene from once upon a time in Hollywood where uh -huh. Bruce Lee gets into a fight with a stuntman who I think is Gene LaBelle in the way that I remembered the story was Bruce was on set or something, you know, talking about how he's the baddest dude. And I think Gene LaBelle, uh, or it could have been somebody, I, I, I'm putting it to Gene LaBelle, because he yeah. would be about that time, and he was one of the first stuntmen, makes the comment like, you don't look that tough to me. And I guess the story goes, Gene LaBelle fucking hammered him. So any any truth to that one? Yeah, I don't, that, that was super controversial. Like, oh my God, like the whole, the Lee family was very un, unhappy with that. And I remember reading some stuff with, like, I laughed during that scene. I thought it was And great. I'm a huge Bruce Lee fan. I was, Me too. I, I was friends, you know, I was good friends with Brandon Lee. I mean, I was like, so, like, that should have offended me. I just thought, I went, it's a fucking movie. Um, right. The, uh, I, I think the Gene LaBelle story was actually about Steven Seagal and choked him out. Because I think... Well, there is a story that Seagal shit himself, but the, the story that I heard... <laughs> Uh, was that scene, and uh, I, who knows? Uh, I know the Lee family was pretty upset, but there was a scene, I guess, that, uh, and I, I can't remember who the stuntman was, but something of that, like there was some historical accuracy in that where he squared off against somebody on the set of something. 
And I just did. Yeah, and and I, I'm attributing it to Gene LaBelle because he probably would have, he's the only guy I can really come up. He's still alive back then. Dude, Gene LaBelle yeah. is a badass. I, every time he was on Rogan, he's the best. <laughs> Dude, so I, I've, I've known, like, I for years I knew, I, I, I knew Gene. Uh, but did you know what color his gi was whenever he showed up to teach? Pink. Pink. Yeah. He wore a pink gi. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. That's a that's like you're the most dangerous man in the world if you show up in a pink gi, and everyone goes, "Yes, Mr. Lavelle." Yeah, <laughs> like, he, he was legit bad. Yeah, no, he. Uh, yeah, the stories are pretty epic. Like, um, you know, and I think it was the way the story goes with Seagal. I guess Seagal's like, "Oh, I have this move," and of course he's like, "Well, put me in the move," you know, or he puts you know, uh, or I can escape any move, and I think he put him in a move, and then I guess like Spell like karate chops him in the balls. At which point, Gene LaBelle, I guess, bit, just bit down and just choked him out to death. Or uh, choked him out till he shit himself. <laughs> and then he tells the story and he's like, well, and then uh, Steven shit himself. And, you know, like, it's, it's a pretty funny <laughs> story if you hear it. But, yeah, I just yeah. didn't know if there was any historical accuracy to that. Because when I saw it, I was dying. Yeah, it, it was it was super funny. I don't, I don't, I don't know, it, you know, if that, if that was uh, real or not. I laughed at it. I like I like the scene. I don't remember anything from reading all the stuff. And you just like it's it's almost you don't even know, you know, what's real anymore. I remember reading about Bruce Lee's one and three inch punch, how he would knock people six feet through the air, and you know, and how he did it to stuntmen on the sets and this and that. And then finally, about 20 years later, footage from Bruce Lee doing the demo at the famous Ed Parker Long Beach, sure. you know, black and white footage came out. And I had been practicing this one inch and three inch punch with this idea. It was like almost the Roger Bannister effect of you can't run a four minute mile and then he does it. But I thought Bruce Lee at 145 pounds, here I am 168 in my prime, fucking going and, and working on this one inch punch. And, and I'm moving people like three feet, four feet, four and a half feet falling, smashing walls. And I'm going, how the fuck did Bruce do this? And then when I finally saw the video, he didn't do that. There was somebody wrote that. So who knows, you know, even back then they had fake news. Well, uh, Uh, you know, uh, Ed Parker, um, his nephew was my training partner in college. And uh, really, yeah. So he was my training partner at Cal. And then we'd go back in the summer and stay with his family. And uh, his dad, uh, David, who since passed away, was incredible man. Uh, you know, this is his older brother was Ed Parker and would tell us and, you know, and I, you know, obviously being into martial arts and, you know, knowing Ed, Ed Parker and Kempo. And I think sure. I even met Jeff, Jeff Speakman a few times, like, um, that was like extremely impactful and like getting to hear the stories about like, you know, how they developed Kempo and how that whole thing and you know, the training that they did and just some of the origin stories were pretty incredible. Sure. That, that's friggin' martial royalty there. Oh yeah, and then you know, and then uh, all of a sudden, his dad comes out with this like shoebox of all the jewelry that Elvis had given them over the years. Mm. Uh, so whenever they'd come to Hawaii, Elvis would come, and like it was pretty amazing, like just the amount of stuff. And then him talking about you know uh, Ed Parker, they had their you know American Kempo sticker on his guitar, and he you know then when Elvis got all weird with the martial arts stuff in Vegas, that was all Ed Parker driven. So right. pretty neat. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I want to go back. I want to go back uh, to there's plenty of aspiring coaches listening right now. And you talked about something about uh, the neuroscience behind fear. Is there any way you could give a a little crash course to, to ourselves and the listeners on, Hey, if you're, if you're looking to truly inspire individuals, whether it's your, you know, your own family or, or athletes or individuals you're working with, what, what do you need to know about fear and how do you need to, to approach it and get it out of that back seat 
and into the passenger seat? Right. Yeah. Cool. Good question. So <clears throat> there's, you know, if I, if I tell somebody and I'll, I'll, I'll answer it by reframing and I, cause I try not to, a lot of times I'll, I, I'm in contact with a neuroscientist or some doctor and I go, listen, I'm not going to change any of my protocols cause I know they work. I just don't know if I'm pronouncing these words correctly. And, uh, you know, they laugh and they're like, what? And, uh, um, the, because the original scenario training design dates back to the 80s before there were MRIs and, and neuroscience and nobody knew what interleaving and brain-based training was and, and you know, there was no myelinization and stuff like that. Uh, but when I read, you know, the first book that really opened my eyes to this was the book, The, um, the Talent Code. And uh, if you guys haven't read it, you should read it because it's, it's a really good layperson's explanation to why these tennis players, these soccer players, this cello player, these in these different boxes. What is and John, you dig it if you haven't read it. No, it was da, uh, da, yeah, Dan Coyle. Um, I did a speaking engagement for uh, Naval Special Warfare with Dan Coyle, and I got to sit at the oh. table with him and fucking hammer him for three hours. Nice. The uh, uh, yeah. So you know what was interesting is not just the the training methodology, and I realized I had intuitively figured out in the eighties what you know these guys are doing how they were getting these reps under pressure that was myelinating the neurotransmitter so it was making they, they were it was accelerating their their competence and confidence that gave them the skill set um but he also as as you probably know it's directly tied to the coaches that these athletes had were also very intuitive intelligent coaches who were if you if you look back and you said describe this coach you would see technician trainer stuff <clears throat> but you would also go this guy cares about this athlete he really cares and he wants him to be better so going back going back to your question luke the um uh the the and i got a a graph here that i'll i'll actually pop up here um the um the way I describe understanding and changing your relationship with fear, and this is, if you guys can see this, and I'll send you the, the, the link to this. This is part of our, our No Fear program. And basically, it's a, it's, if it looks like an electrical flow chart. And I, mm -hmm. I developed this in the 80s. Uh, it wasn't as cool. This is, a, this is upgraded graphic. I've got eight or nine <laughs> iterations of it. But, you know. Well, I'm just I, really impressed that you started a whole T-shirt line around No Fear in the 80s. Dude. Um, I was, I interviewed master Ken yesterday, you know, master Ken, yeah, the market. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. No, I follow him on YouTube. I love him. Dude, you gotta go, gotta go listen to this. We're, uh, <laughs> we start off the show and, uh, and of course I'm in character too. I'm going oh, master Ken. It's a big honor. You know, you're one of the only guys I've ever been nervous to have on my show. And I know this guy from 20 years ago, his name's Matt page. And I actually trained his instructor, this guy rich in in so we got this crazy history right to see his career become master ken so you know but you got to watch it it's a 30 minute interview and it's fucking hilarious and he does a spoof on the spear that's fucking I, for me to keep a straight face <laughs> during this but he's like he's there going uh hey you got a spelling mistake on your shirt isn't it just supposed to be no fear and i'm like oh fuck and i said oh yeah and i, and I do and i do this and he goes now it says no ear he goes, uh, he goes, uh, he goes, that, that reminds me of that, uh, that famous artist, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. And like, like, it was fucking 
like just so in the zone. Anyways, check it out. Dude, uh, hilarious side junk. Uh, my buddy Rick, who's uh, the, the artist for Starling Gear, um, who's, you know, did all my original designs for Cross the Football and has been one of my best friends forever. Uh, he was the artist that did all the original No Fear uh, designs. Oh, really? And he did all the original tap out designs and was like kind of like the guy that. So I always joke with him. I'm like, so we have to blame all that awful 80s and 90s stuff on you. And he's like, <laughs> yes, guilty as charged. That's awesome. That's awesome. Anyway, so back, so back to this. I, cr- I created this back in like around 80, 1986. It wasn't as, as slick looking as that. But I was listening to uh, Howard Gardner in an interview. Howard Gardner is a famous social scientist, and he wrote book Frame of Minds and a bunch of other books. But he was on this PBS interview, and he says, uh, I'm driving somewhere. And he goes, uh, yeah, I've been researching people and blah, 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 blah. He says, I've concluded, just an observation, that 80% of an individual's motivation is derived from their expectation. And I'm like driving, and I'm like, fucking look at the radio. It was back in the day where you had buttons and you turn shit, right? Like, you know, um, and I'm like, and I, I actually say to the radio, what? Because it was such a neat sentence. And he repeats it. There was this pregnant pause and he repeats it. It was almost like weird serendipity. He goes, 80% of our motivation is derived from our expectation. Meaning that if, if I don't feel like today's going to be a good day, I'm probably going to create the self-fulfilling prophecy and fuck up my day, right? I got these negative expectations. If I go, hey, let's go work out. And you go, eh, I'm probably going to hurt myself. I mean, you know, blah, 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 or this is going to be too. It's And so I went back to my office and there was no, of course, whiteboards back then. I had a blotter on my desk and I wrote down motivation expectation. And then I started to reverse engineer this, what turns out to look like an electrical flow chart. And why the electrical flow chart was important because pop ahead to a year after the 9-11 federal express hired me to design a program for all their pilots and uh it was a massive deal we're down at hq in in memphis and i'm training up a team of of, i think it was about 16 or 20 master instructors that are going to train their two or three thousand pilots and when i'm showing them this i'm explaining this is the neural circuitry of fear this is how we make decisions under duress um, one of them said, that looks like an electrical flow chart. It's interesting. And I went, you know, it is because the idea here is that if you fixate anywhere, you could, bl- if each one of these was a fuse that you metaphorically blow a fuse, you disempower the power cuts off. And so, uh, where, where it went was, Hey, in any scenario, I go, guys, you know, they wanted the pandemic fucking they're shutting down. We're like, yeah. Day two, we're like, fuck, how long is this going to go? We start to get demotivated because our expectations change. So what I did is I went reverse engineer. I said, well, what what kind of feeds an expectation? Well, that's how our brain links up a symbol. That's our belief system. So I wrote out, you know, neuroassociations, how we link up symbols. I, I wrote down beliefs, erroneous beliefs, and uh, continued. And I, there were two acronyms that I always loved. Uh, false evidence appearing real and false expectations appearing real, right? And so false evidence is I see something that triggers an expectation. That's the movie in my mind. And then we had a door, the, this little door at the bottom here, where it was this challenge, a threatened door. I'll get, again, I'll get you the, um, the, a copy of the, the, the screen if you want to stick it in the show notes or whatever. That'd be great. And it was this challenge, a threatened door where 
we recognize we're in the fear loop. And if we're in the fear loop, we're now, this is, remember Jim Carrey's character in Dumb and Dumber in the bathroom scene, you know, in the fear loop, we're fucking immobilized by fear. We're total primal, we're, we're, we're panicking, we've got non-clinical or clinical anxiety, we're fucked. And so you're in your quicksand going, I'm gonna fucking die, I don't know what to do, somebody help me. Then I created a duress path. The duress path is when you go, I gotta fucking move, I gotta do some shit. But the whole time while you're in the duress path, you're actually like like the guy that uh, what's what was the guy's name again? The football player you're talking about? Jordan Black. Jordan Black. He was in the duress path. Like he knew how to run and play, and he was maybe a good athlete. But the duress path is when you know what the plan is, but you're simultaneously carrying the weight of fear. Uh, and I ask people this: like if you do Murph with or without uh, a weight vest, which which is harder? And people laugh if you've done it both, right? You know. And I go, well, sometimes there are events in life that you need to wear this metaphoric vest and it's going to add weight and it's going to make everything suck, but you can't focus on that way. You got to focus on what you got to do. And so the duress path is when you're going through whatever you have to do, but you're worrying about, is this going to work out? How's this going to impact life? What's going to happen here? So you never get into flow state or the zone. The green area is you've either been trained properly or, or you're, you're totally in flow. And there, they, the, the duress path and the green area, I put them in parallel because very often you can have a pro fighter, or sorry, a pro baseball player up here like this. And one guy's thinking, fuck, I am going to win the game for us. I'm so excited about this next pitch. And the other guy's going, don't strike out, don't strike out. Right? You got the golfer. Like, how does a golfer fucking miss a putt? Right. You're a pro golfer. Somebody told you, you know, which way the, the grass is growing. You know where the sun is. You're taking a minute looking at shit. How do you miss a three foot putt if you're a pro ball, golfer? I don't know. Right? Are, are you a golfer? No, I'm not at all. No, I would never. Was. But either, the, so joke, the, the joke, the joke, <laughs> right. But the, you know what? I ask people you, in, in training, what's the difference between freezing and choking? Or is it semantics? And a lot of people go, I think it's semantics. I go, no, like an untrained person freezes, a trained person chokes, mm-hmm. you know? So this whole thing, Luke, back to, back, back to, the, to the, the neuroscience of fear is understanding that the physiological changes you have, the way I describe this, that the physiological changes you have because of a fear spike don't matter. Some people have them, some people have. Somebody's an outlier, some, some guy's not. Mike Tyson used to throw up before every one of his fights. You would never know that his body just fucking vomited with him walking out with no socks on, black black shoes, no shirt, right? You just think this guy's ready to kill. And he was, but he was able to purge, purge that and get his game face on and go. Um, but I've seen, and, and, and we've all seen like great athletes who never, you know, had I known how to manage fear, understood how to manage fear, I'd be a fucking ski instructor now living in France. I wouldn't be teaching what I'm doing. Right. It was the fact that I went, what the fuck is this? And it consumed me for decades. And and I would use all of my students as little guinea pigs. Try this. Think about this. And I would literally say to students after like they get in a fight and come back and report to me. I go, how did you do that? I go, they go, what are you talking about? You taught me to do that. And I like totally confused at their performance. But I was able to, uh, you know, I don't know if this is just destiny, fate, a gift. I was always able to look at somebody's movement and listen to their stuff and, and create a map to what they did. And what started to happen 
is people like over years and it's not like like linear like like uh like lego blocks you always have to hit each one you might be in a scenario where you go i'm gonna fucking crush this guy and then he stands up and you're like holy fuck he's big i'm gonna die today and then you go dude you're in the fear loop fucking you need to hit him in the fucking balls right now and go like so sometimes it might go from here to here to here and it's like boom and you're out of it <clears throat> other times you're wallowing in fear and then you recognize that that's that self-awareness part do so you, do you think people um like fear is comfort like do you think that like uh like that fear loop that um everybody's like uh, you know actively thinking like i don't want to be fearful or do you think that people feed into this and like there's comfort and fear and there's comfort and and panic and and uh you know because it kind of alleviates people from responsibility like you know i was so panicked and so fearful this pandemic i um you know i've, I've just i haven't left my house i haven't paid a bill i haven't done anything like i've you know i've effectively retreated or do you think that that's just a byproduct i think it's both i think there's some people that get acclimated to being the victim and and but they don't because they don't know what freedom of fear or freedom from fear feels like they have you know like nothing to compare it to i I think that 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 it's fucking liberating and we've all done this where you know you come in and you say to somebody you can tell because body language is 60 percent of communication something's wrong with your wife or your best friend or your kid and they don't want to talk about it sometimes they don't even want to talk about it because they don't know what it is yet then when it finally comes up and they go like like everyone after they get something off their chest goes oh my gosh i feel like 100 pounds lighter right there's always that i'm so glad i told you i'm so glad we got through this and it could be medical it could be competition it could be a fucking hard conversation so i think everybody knows instinctively you know, that this will feel better. I think people don't know how to practice courage. It's all the, it's always this big thing. I was so scared to tell you, I was so scared to do this and people just don't show up. But I think it's both, John. I think that's an interesting, really deep question. Um, uh, but people get, people get comfort, you know, they get comfortable. It's, and that, that's all adaptation, right? That's all classical Pavlovian conditioning. If you get attention, by being a victim and someone's always saving your life and fixing things for you, then you, you don't even realize when you're doing that, you know? Um, that's I'm, I'm just thinking in like, um, in like this, uh, like present situation we're in. And I think we have such an interesting observation. Like it's, it, it's so like social media has provided something really pretty fascinating because I think that there's a level of honesty that for some reason I've seen on social media that I know that people wouldn't have in person. Like mm. I'll see p- people post things and they write this whole deal. And I'm just like, I'm amazed at how many people like, uh, the fear of the unknown, the fear of this. I mean, the idea that there's some nefarious plot against them. I mean, like the amount of like, uh, you know, just fear mongering it. Um, it's like the lack of, I would say positive messages that are like, not just some disingenuous deal, but like, Hey, like, you know, man has persevered through many things and like looking at history and being like, there was a, you know, there was a, a epidemic that killed a hundred thousand Americans in 1969. We didn't quarantine and we had Woodstock that year, which I think was like H2N2, but look that one up text. Right. Um, so like, I mean this, like we've had situations like this in the past, but we've never had a reaction this severe. I mean, we've never quarantined healthy people. Uh, right. You know, by definition of quarantine is you take sick people and you separate them from the healthy people. Right. Now this we're is actually more house, well, there's more house arrest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so this uh, like 
we've never had a time like this. And I'm, and I constantly wonder if like the, the time and the reaction is indicative of where we are within this like social, uh, social media, uh, internet, the connectivity. I mean, before, you know, if something was written in a New York paper on a Tuesday, I, you know, somebody wouldn't read about it in LA until Thursday. And so now we have this direct information in here and everybody has a platform to be able to provide this and this and this. And I think what it does is it just creates uh, like the way they're dealing with it is everybody hide at home because we don't know how people are going to deal with this, uh, that we've almost lost resiliency. And um, I I just like the amount of uh, of people like and maybe this is just within my Facebook or the social media or the people that are giving pushed at me at the algorithms, um, the amount of like. Uh, conspiracy and like there's this nefarious group that's doing this and this and I always go back to the um, you know the uh, um, Occam's razor which is the simplest is usually or the simplest answer is usually the correct one that I think people just don't know how to react and they're doing the best that they can and I don't necessarily know if it's nefarious plots but it just feels like uh, a whole bunch of people that don't know what the fuck they're doing trying to give people stability and it just falling apart and then people don't necessarily know how to react because there is a fear of unknown create this unknowable silent killer that floats through the air and you don't know if it's a healthy person or unhealthy person it could hurt your kill the children but it probably couldn't but it hurts old people and i mean it's like it's like a plot of a fucking movie uh if you wanted to really figure out how to uh, separate and make people fear each other, you know, like, like we said, walking down the aisle of the supermarket and people are all of a sudden like, <gasps> like freezing against things that somehow this flesh eating disease is going to leap off my body and end their existence. But this mask is going to protect them. It's, right. um, it's a very, very, very strange time. It is. And I think it's, I think it's, uh, I think it's everything that you said. Plus for many years, we've been like, like, can you imagine when you were going to school, somebody saying like, if anybody needs a timeout or you need to go cry, there's a little area over there where, where you can go, you know, cry with some friends and, and you can protest whatever you want. And, and you know, like, if something bad happens in the news, you don't have to take a test, you know, and, and we'll just give you a grade. Like if you like, like we're, the world's in a fucking weird place. Coddling yeah. of the American Mind. Uh, one, you know, an excellent book, Tony. If you want to look this one up, Coddling of the American Mind. I uh, forget the two authors, but um, incredible Haidt. book. Jonathan yeah. Haidt. Jonathan Haidt uh, goes into this whole deal about how, like, the uh, progressive, uh, you know, secondary education of universities has become this like bastion, this culture, or you know, this petri dish. You call it for this, and uh, it's what they're taught because you know you have these for-profit institutions where the students are the consumers and they have to keep their consumers happy and, uh, you know, helicopter parenting. And it just goes into like weaves this whole thing. As I was reading it, I was like, man, this is, this is insightful. And, um, but yeah, that's yeah. a, I, I put that one on the book too, especially with fear. I'll check that out. It, it, uh, you know, it's, it, and that's the scariest thing is, is that like right now fear is the currency. I mean, when, when, when has, when has the world, world ever shut down at the same time like like it's never happened like everyone yeah. you know the news just came out and and we just all of us in, including including the fucking more rebellious of us the type a's went okay let's just fucking sit down yeah but right. i mean the original intent was to flatten the curve and like I, yeah. when they explained it to me like hey everybody's gonna get this 
we just can't get everybody together at once. So if we can do some quarantining, we can separate it, we can flatten the curve, which means we're not going to overload the hospitals. To me, that was a, I was like, that makes total sense. If you need me to hang out at home for three weeks to effectively flatten this curve and so we don't overload hospitals, I'm totally fine. But then all of a sudden it became quarantine to hide from this. And I'm like, when did the narrative change? And I was like, you know, like, how do we go from flattening the curve to like hiding from something? And when have we ever just hid from anything? Or when have we had the delusion to think that we can hide from this? Right. uh, When three weeks previous, they said, and I I heard them say it, everybody's going to get this because of the, you know, the close proximity in which we live and the way that it's transmitted in this, like everybody's going to get it. It's going to strengthen, you know, uh, we just have to flatten the curve because we can't have everybody going to the hospital at once. And then they order right. millions of respirators and find out that respirators aren't necessarily the problem because it just, it's, you know, harming red blood cells, not necessarily decreasing lung function. And so then like now they're pivoting. And I think the problem is, is when you give, at least for me, if you're as a, what I like to cons- assume a rational human being, when you give me one set of rational ideas and I'm like, okay, Hey, this is, this is what we're doing. I understand the mission. Let's follow this plan. And then all of a sudden you throw another narrative into me where it's like, now it's a fear-based one. Like I, I totally get like, Hey, don't overwhelm the hospitals, flatten the curve. But then it's like, Oh, we have to shelter in place because we can't have people getting this. And you're like, but I thought you said everybody was going to get it. And nobody ever came out and explained that to us. Right. Yeah. There's, there's uh, and th- and that's where all the conspiracy theories emerge from. When you, when you, when you, you start looking at some of the patents and business relationships that Fauci has, and and you know you start listening to some you know interviews Alex with Jones, you know, but all like all these guys and and every and the 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 scary thing about all conspiracy theories, if they're well written, they're totally plausible. <laughs> like you know you read it and you go, oh wow, that that actually could be true. I fucking hope it's not. Yeah. You know. Well, I mean, I, I like in uh, uh, we talked about this yesterday, and we've talked about it on the podcast before. I found a pretty interesting quote because I, I came to the realization that people are more comforted in knowing that there's a, in believing in a conspiracy theory because there's this idea that there's some you know evil doctor guy in a you know in a fucking right. uh, bunker lab on on an island pulling these nefarious strings and planning, and it's all orchestrated and organized. There's more confidence and like uh, uh, like like more, like, uh, I guess you could say comfort in knowing that than there is, uh, the reality that it's probably a whole bunch of people that don't, don't know what the fuck that they're doing, running around in circles, trying to put out fires and fucking it all up. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, you know, my position on it is, is, has always been the virus is real and, and X is going to be the, the calamity that it causes X. But if you crash the world's economy, and we talked about this in the beginning, and then that becomes suicide, depression, domestic violence, you know, messed up kids, uh, uh, rioting, looting, gangs roaming around, and suddenly the walking dead is happening, but there's just no zombies. There's just the walking dead. You know, like, like you just, uh, that's 100x. So whatever the virus was going to do, you're going to 10x that or 100x that by you know, crushing the economy. And like you said, you know, the year of Woodstock, there was a really good post uh, yesterday on at historic, I think it is, uh, that listed uh, all of like, like the last hundred years of shit that we've gone through. And the message being, we get through it, we adapt. Yeah, It sucks, but we adapt. And and that cool. goes back to your first discussion about, you know, why kids need to be 
playing in the dirt and hanging out at school because your immune system system does not stand a chance. It's, it's, it's exactly metaphorically. I mean, this is, you know, uh, you know, power athlete. It'd be like, you can't be a power athlete if you fucking lie in bed. Like your immune system needs to exercise your muscles, your, your, you need to exercise. Your brain needs to exercise. Otherwise you're going to just fucking wither away. Yeah. Um, no, it's, uh, I, I think that the, uh, Interesting thing, and like the, the lady from the master class made a good point. She's like, you know, um, and her, and I guess this was a statement that her husband reiterated over many years, was America is not that fragile. Like there have been things that have torn at it, and she went through all these different, you know, this and, and everything, and it's like America is extremely resilient and not that fragile. And I've realized that, uh, that like the... I wonder if that's not the same, like, prog- like progressing anymore. Like I saw there was uh, the oldest woman in Italy survived the coronavirus at 113 years old. And hmm. as they were interviewing her, she's like, just imagine she was born in what, like 19 or I'm uh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, 1907. So, you know, Great Depression, World War One, World War Two, like, like the list of things that Spanish she has endured, flu, Spanish flu, all the other stuff that could have killed her. Famine, this. I mean, went through like this poor ladies and she's like. Um, this didn't seem like a real big thing to me. <laughs> like, and uh, I, as she's smoking a cigarette and like drinking a beer or something. Well, but it it just goes to show like that uh, we're we're resilient people, but we're only resilient if we're tested. And I don't know if like telling people just to go home and hide in their homes is really what America was built on, or more importantly, the resilience of the human spirit. I, I fucking hundred percent agree with that, man. And 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 like I said, you got to practice courage. You can't. You, you can't buy a resiliency degree. <laughs> like you got to go through shit and bounce back. And, and, you know, that's, that's, that's part of building muscle and, and, and adapting to injuries and, and, and working shit out uh, at, at the, at the core of it, it's how do I manage my fear? How do I, I think, you know, cause that's what it is. It's like if everyone who's not, everyone who's just talking online and sitting around like if you ask them everyone's talking about fear they might not be using the word fear it's like what's going to happen in the economy what's going to happen to people we need to get this we need to get that um i don't know what the answer is but uh you know if i were interviewing or talking to that 100 you said she was 114 113 years old 113 i, I would just because of what i study i'd be looking at, at her and i'm going wow like in how resilient but what she's done over these years is created this resiliency around that fear spike where she goes look it wasn't that bad right and and that's the you know that's like your first fight your fifth fight your tenth fight and then you can go to another arena where you go holy shit i'm fucking I, i mean i've i've gotten up to go talk um I remember once calling uh, my wife, Jess, saying, I'm so fucking scared right now. She goes, what are you talking about? I go, like, I, they, they asked me to come talk at this airline pilots uh, association thing. And it was supposed to be for these 40 people there. And that was the directors from the state. They didn't tell me I was also talking to the general assembly, which was 500 people. I'd never talked to 500 people before. It was on live TV back in the day, CNN, Fox. And, and I looked out through the curtain and I fucking like, it just, the stimulus got introduced too quickly. 
I was still a subject matter expert. I was still me. I was still a confident speaker. I knew all my stories, but I let myself look too much at what the audience represented. And, uh, and I just, I share this guys and anyone listening because you, you know, I draw these circles on our whiteboard, three circles. One of them says comfort zone, that's shit you're cool with. And then there's discomfort zone, that's shit you're not really happy about, but you kind of know through abstraction, I know A and C, I'll figure out B, I'm going to go through that. And so you're at your discomfort zone. And then there's the third circle, the holy shit zone. The holy shit zone is literally that where you look at that and you go, holy shit. And we need to recognize when something makes us go, holy shit, the fuck is going on with the world right now? There's a moment where, where life has paused in our mind. And this is, this is the, 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 that dish of fucking shit metaphor for where the fear loop starts in the holy shit zone. And that's where I tell people, when you get a moment of doubt and hesitation, you need to cultivate the self-awareness to go, wait, I just hesitated there. What do I need to learn? What do I need to understand? Have you seen my, uh, my uh, I got an acronym to help people through this that I wanna share with you guys. Um, let me see if I have it, if I have it here visually. No, I don't, damn it. But the first, the first letter is uh, F. If you get a fear spike, and you're like, whoa, I'm in my holy shit zone. It's face the fear. I mean, turn, turn towards the danger and look at it. Obviously, if it's a real violent encounter, that might be the strategy, right? Running away or hiding from an immediate attack isn't going to make you safer. But in a lot of cases, we have time to do some research. So the first letter of this, this is F for face it. Face your fear. The second letter is U understand your fear, understand the fear. That's Google, talk to a subject matter expert, talk to your doctor, talk to your, your coach, right? Uh, so it's F, it's you. Then the next one is control it. Real life is gonna happen on its time. So you may be, this goes back to the Customato quote of you may be in the moment where you need to manage your fear and still be in the fight. It's not gonna disappear. So the third letter is C, it's control it. Fight with the fear, use it as fuel. And then the fourth letter is know it. You get to the point where you go, I know this. If I do enough reps, I know what this feeling is. I know what I have to do. And if you're following the letters, it's face fuck. fear, understand fear. And so the acronym there is fuck fear. You get a fear <laughs> spike, you just go fuck fear. And you turn it into fuel and you move with it, face it, understand it, control it, and get to know it. Also for unlawful carnal knowledge, English legal term wow. for the word fuck. Did huh. you did not know that word? I history. did not. For unlawful carnal knowledge. Jesus, that's a good one too. Also the uh, name of a Van Halen album. Is it? I think it is. It's either Sammy Hagar or Van Halen. Van Hagar. Van Hagar. Big fan of here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Tony, I want to highlight your podcast, also aptly named No Fear, K-N-O-W. I caught an episode with, with Brian Callen, funny guy, so I'd love to have you share the mission of your podcast and what you've learned over the years of getting the opportunity to talk to so many people, because we find it very valuable. Yeah, so I started it as, uh, it was almost not a lark, but it was like, I should just do a podcast, you know? Uh, and I thought that, that like, like fear needs a makeover 
because so many people like fear is a stigma. People don't like, like to talk about it. So if I said, you know, Hey John, like, you know, how do you handle fear? You go fuck fear. Like, you know, like, but there may be like a pre event ritual that you don't deviate on. And you go like, don't talk to me an hour before and make sure this is here like this and do that. Cause I'm fucking like, and to me, that's performance anxiety. It's just semantics on fear. This is like my ritual. Don't, and like pro athletes and, and serious entrepreneurs, they all have that. Is, and it's is, just, is that a bad thing? Cause uh, I have no. uh, I dude, I had such a specific ritual and the problem is if it deviated, it was fucking like, it was hard to come back from if something was really fucked up, like in the deviation of it. Yeah. So it's not a bad thing. And you know, remember when I told the Maurice Smith yeah. story? So imagine, so I've trained fighters. Imagine if, if, and this is an interesting thing, because a true coach recognizes like, like how many kids do you have, John? Uh, I got three. Three. Like, do you treat them exactly the same and talk to them exactly the same? Or not at all. Not at all. You're, you're aware that they all have different personalities and they need different things from you. Yeah. And, and one of them, you might go, come on, get your ass off the ground. That didn't fucking hurt. And the other one is like, hey, you're okay. Let's talk about resiliency and boo-boos. You know, like what? And, and so there, as a dad, you're an intuitive coach. So imagine if I had, because that story with Maurice is cool. Hey, Maurice, I got a question for you. Yeah, I got a question for you, Mr. Blower. Yeah, you afraid to go to work? No, me either. Right? Like if you saw that movie line in a movie, you'd go, yeah, like that's a cool line. I'm not afraid to go to work. This is my fucking job. This is how I feed my family. Um, but if you've ever been in a fighter's locker room, there's one guy sitting on a bench and his legs going, fucking 100 miles an hour, right? He's pumping the floor. There's other guys like just pacing around like this. There's somebody standing in front of a locker bank, bouncing his head off the locker bank going, right? Another guy punching himself. And everyone has a different pre-fight ritual based on their competency and their confidence based on where they are in their career. That adaptation, comfort zone, discomfort zone, holy shit zone, right? So, you know, you you show up to a, a grappling tournament and you look around and you go, I think I'm going to win today. And then like 10 minutes before they're about to start, Hoist Gracie walks in and starts to sign up. And you're like, are you fucking kidding me? Hoist Gracie? Like, okay, I'll come What's in What's he hundred years old now? <laughs> Maybe, but no, he I'm probably- just, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. Like, Hoist, we were joking. Yeah. Um, but, um, but without even fighting- this is such a cool concept. We imbue people with skills they haven't yet proven. That's where visualizing, we give them skills they haven't. We see a guy with a cauliflower ear and a broken nose wearing a tap out shirt, and we go, fuck, I don't want to fight that guy. Well, maybe he has a broken nose because he has no defense and he's got cauliflower ears because, you know, his older brother used to do this to him all the time and someone gave him the tap out shirt. But we've just decided he's an MMA fighter just because of what we looked at. That's the false evidence appearing real, triggering this movie here. So how does this tie into, you know, this idea of like, is my ritual a dangerous thing? It's not if you can control your ritual, right? But I like to tell people like athletes are super, are very superstitious, right? So I've had athletes where I go, fuck, shit, coach, what's up? I don't remember an example. My lucky rabbit, you know, my, I'm not, where are my socks? Where are my socks? And I go, dude, your left hook has nothing to do with your fucking socks. That rabbit foot, this pre-fight ritual, I understand it gets you in the zone, but my goal as a coach is to get somebody to recognize they're the talent. And there are certain things, don't get me wrong, so I'm not making light of, you know, 
I like to, if I don't, I get up in the morning, I do some meditation, I do some breathing, I try to do some movement right away. When I get, I, I look up sometimes and a fucking email pops up and it's something important and I and I look at it, as I'm doing that, I go, dude, you just fucked up your, your ritual, no fucking email before, right? And then the day takes its own, its own path. So there's nothing inherently wrong with that, John, if you can control it. Um, if you know, if you know, I don't need my ritual, but they're going to get the, the A minus version of John. If I do my ritual, I'm going to fucking this will like every, every gig you do should be better than the one you did before. That's how I live my life. You know, it's like, like that was my best podcast. No, that was my best podcast. Now this next one's moving, you know, is, but this, getting your back, is this your best podcast? This, this was my second best because I did one this morning and that was my best. Yes, this is my best one. Um, but getting back, but getting back to, to, to the no fear thing, it just started off as, as this idea that there's a stigma of fear. And I had realized two years ago when I started the podcast that if I had a choice between teaching people all the, everything I learned about the start of weaponizing the start of Lynch scenario-based training, or just teaching people how to manage fear, and I could only pick one or the other, that, that, that here I am 43 years into from trainer to coach to trainer coach, that I would, for self-defense, I would only focus on fear because I've seen people who are very talented physically that should have won, that should have dominated, that didn't because they came out of the gate like your buddy and the football player going, this guy's going to fucking run me over. And guess what? You're right. And so when I had that epiphany, that, that at the end of the day, whether it was intuitive, conscious or unconscious, it was our ability to manage fear as fuel that helped us create a business or helped us get married or helped us be a good dad or, or whatever. You think about all those moments, like something happens, you go, I'm not letting that happen to my kids. I'm not doing this again in my second marriage. You know, I'm not letting my business... I'm not going to lose my business over this shit. If you go, what was that? That was a fear management moment because you could easily roll over like, you know, and become one of the victims that go, well, fucking, you know, I got hit with this. What was I supposed to do? I had no choice. Right. So no fear started off as a way for me to just talk and try to mitigate the stigma fear has. Um, I realized very quickly that I've been teaching for 30 years straight and I was used to talking for five hours or sorry, five days, eight hours a day. And I was a horrible fucking listener. So like the first 10, 15 episodes, I was like, oh, I was like, I just, it was fucking awful. Um, not that the conversations were bad, but, but in, there was so much internal struggle in me. I couldn't concentrate because I was so used to somebody, me standing up in front of a class, doing a keynote, doing a fucking demo, talking, do drills. And it was just, and then, so that became a goal of mine. Got to become a better listener. I got to learn to, to, to you know, understand these stories. Most of the people on my podcast are people that have used my system or my research in, in there were a bunch of them in life and death situations, the early ones, or people who were, should have been dead. Like I've Jared Reston's a buddy of mine, you know, shot multiple times in the face at point blank range, uh, ends up killing the guy. I mean, it's an insane story all in the news, uh, you know, uh, Jacksonville cop. Um, but, you know, gets in a struggle, tries to arrest a guy who pulls out a gun. And he says, like, he shot me near point blank. Do you know Jared? 
John, you know the story of Jared Rustin? No, I don't. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta, I'll send you the link to the story. Okay. It's insane. But he, he, he said, um, I thought he hit me with a punch, but it was a bullet, like that, you know, blew part of his face off, you know. Uh, but uh, he just talks about the, like the whole, so it was like stories like that where I had another guy, Brian Murphy, who I trained his police department. Do you remember the Sikh temple shooting in Wisconsin years ago? Yeah. yeah. Um, look at this. He gets out of his car. There's, he comes across, there's two dead guys in the body. There's a guy like 75 yards away running. It's the killer. He yells to the guy to stop. He's chasing the guy. The guy at 75 yards turns on a run and shoots and hits Brian in the fucking gun, blows a finger off and his gun falls out of his hand Jesus. from 75 yards. Like that shot, John Wick can't do that, right? Like that's not even a shot in a movie. Um, he gets shot in the face. The guy ends up, guy, ends up guy, uh, coming back, circling around him and shooting Brian, I think it's 14 or 16 times. And Brian's on, you gotta listen to this podcast. Brian's on his back, like with his hands posted like this, yelling at the guy, come here, you fucker. You know, like I'll fucking kill you while the guy's shooting at him. Uh, cops arrive on the scene and fucking kill him. Uh, and you know, you ask Brian, like, what do you, like, here he is, like what indignation he's been shot in the face, lost his gun. He's got 14 bullet holes in him or 16 and he's going, come here. And the guy wouldn't come near him and he's got the gun. And when I look at that, like, it's like, what is that? One guy was afraid, one guy wasn't. I mean, just insane. So no fear became about that. Uh, I try to, you know, invite people on that have some special event where we get to talk about fear uh, because that was the goal of it is how do we inspire people? Like, hey, whatever you're scared of, as long as it's not, you know, uh, criminal or dangerous to dogs or kids or whatever, like you can fuck fear, face it, understand it, control it, get to know it. It'll change your life. So we have these things like, like do something that scares you every day, right? It's a meme, but we don't have a formula. We don't have people explaining what that might look like. And that's the idea of, I practice courage by if I'm afraid of public speaking, you know, what should I do? Should I do a Ted talk or should I, you know, assert myself at, at a restaurant when they open and go, Hey, my burger's overdone. Like you got to practice like little chunks. Right. So, you know, but that was the, that was the gist of it is, is now it's expanded into more stuff like the talk with Brian, you know, that was a, like a, like a, a COVID thing where I started interviewing people like the, uh, the, the master Ken talk, you know, it's all questions about how are you handling the COVID thing? And I called, I called Matt up and I said, dude, I said, I want to interview you, you know, but do you want to be mad or do you want to be Master Ken? He goes, well, nobody knows, Matt. You're not going to get any traffic. It was like, Matt, who the fuck's Matt Page? I said, okay, like, so can you talk about the pandemic? It's, <laughs> I actually literally, you want to see something insane? It's funny that you brought this up. Um, um, so I don't know if you guys can see this. So this is from Brian Callen this morning. No fear. Yeah. It's but, fucking hilarious. So, I love you. <laughs> so, I love this guy. Right. So that's, that's one of the funniest guys in the world talking about like that, that, uh, the thing that I posted on Instagram yesterday. It's so, awesome. yeah. So yeah, no. So, so I, I actually did one really interesting talk with, with Frank Grillo, you know, the actor. 
boxer. Yeah. yeah. So, he, you know, he'll be, he'll, he'll be up, but I just started like talking to like Mike Glover, special, you know, retired special operations, dude. Uh, 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 Dave LaDuke, a Lethway fighter, world champion, just these different people who, who I noticed maintained an element of positivity and output during this. And it was like, how are you handling this? And it was just, you know, like different, different talks. So the last couple of months I've been pumping out like two or three a week, 30, 40 minutes and asking everybody the same questions without giving them the questions, but almost like we're just having a conversation. How you doing? How's your family? You know, how are you handling this? And we kind of covered a lot of that in the beginning naturally, but, um, I don't monetize no fear. I don't. So like, sometimes I won't put anything out for six months cause I get busy with shit and people are like, what, where's the podcast, man? Come on. I'm like, uh, dude, I'm busy. Sorry. <laughs> cool. That was good shit. Tony, yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to hop on, man. Gentlemen, uh, as, as always, I, I, uh, appreciate this. You guys, you guys are a blast. It was fun. I hope, I hope I provided some value to your listeners and, uh, fuck fear. Fuck it. Hey, uh, Tony, if people want to get a hold of you, where's the best way? Um, I guess uh, we created a new website for the lockdown. If you live in California, that's another three months. Maybe you guys are out soon. But if they go to nofear uh, sorry, nofearnow.com, uh, that's all our virtual online shit and all my contact. But, you know, if they, uh, you know, I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all that shit. So, awesome. so Google Tony Blower. Well, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you taking the time. Thank yeah. you. Be safe, everybody. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. There are about a thousand ways to follow Tony on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and his website. As he mentioned, the best way to track him down is a quick Google search. And don't forget to refer to our show notes for the no fear cycle of behavior that he discussed in the show. Until next time, bye!